on that. Oh, okay, that's great. Um, uh, Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna alhamdulillah bihi nasta'een. Wa salatu wa salam ala Sayyid al-Mursaleen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Thanks very much for inviting me, uh, Muhammad. Thanks for introducing me, Saif. I actually met Saif uh, right after I became Muslim in 1997, fall of 1997. He looks very similar to the way he did when I first met him. Um, and uh, and uh, they, I also want you to all uh, uh, not only appreciate uh, Brother Muhammad, but also I want you to try, some of you at least, to try and be like him. Because uh, if we don't have people who really do a good job of kind of engaging with young people and helping them come together and making them feel happy and comfortable when they come together, then I'm not sure how well the Muslim community is going to do. You have to, if you want to have another generation of Muslims, and after that another generation of Muslims, you have to have people who are excited, happy to come to the mosque excited and happy to be around other Muslims and to see other Muslims and Muslim life as a, their main way of existing. So it's very important and I'm re really appreciative of him. Every time I see him, it makes me really happy. And not just personally, but it makes me uh, optimistic. So I want uh, some of you, whether men or women, guys or girls, to really think about uh, being more active in helping bring other people together. Uh, one thing I learned relatively early on uh, as a Muslim, um, maybe in the early 2000s, was uh, you know, you don't shoot, becoming a leader isn't, isn't a big deal. I mean, it's not something you sort of think about, like, I'm gonna become a leader. You, be, you have the chance to become a leader when anyone else looks to you for help. When anyone else looks to you to make them feel better or to teach them. And it doesn't mean you have to be the greatest or most knowledgeable person in the world. It just means you have to uh, step up and help those around you. So I want you to always think about uh, that you, 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 you'll be, you may already have been called upon to be a leader and you will constantly be called upon to be a leader. And that's because you're in a community that's uh, embattled and besieged and has a lot of pressures on it, especially young people like you. Some of you maybe were born even after 9-11. Uh, your whole lives you've lived in a pressure cooker uh, where your religion has been attacked constantly. And that's not natural. You're, you're, you can't grow up like that without it taking a taking a toll on you. So once you think about helping other people, when you help other people, you help yourself, right? right? So be, come to the aid of God. Come to the aid of God's community, God will come to your aid. All right. Uh, okay, so um, I'm gonna ask you a question, just to start out. Uh, how many of you think slavery is wrong? Good. And how many of you, the rest of you, are liars? <laughs> and I mean, you're not liars, you're just embarrassed. If you, if, you, if you live in the United States, and you're not in the South, maybe, I don't know. If you lived in urban United States, uh, you think slavery is wrong. You, you've, you've actually never had a choice, but you've been, a, you've been raised to have this feeling. Let me ask you a question, and this is potentially offensive, but I usually use another example, and I'm tired of using it, so this one might be slightly offensive, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Uh, who's this, Lizzo? Rizzo or Lizzo? Lizzo, Rizzo? Lizzo. Lizzo. She's a singer? Yeah. Okay. There's a big controversy around Lizzo. What's the controversy, as far as I can tell? 
far as I can tell, the contrary around Lizzo is that Lizzo is extremely overweight. Correct? Yes. Okay. And then, but she is like performs in skimpy clothing or something. So there's a lot of stuff around like, is Lizzo really, should she really be up there, you know? That's as far as I can tell. Why is this controversy? Why is there this controversy? People don't like saying. Well, I have a question. I mean, when you go to movies and you watch movies and there's a romantic lead in the movie, female lead, does that person ever look like Lizzo? Does that person ever look anything like Lizzo? Does that person like ever look anything like anything like Lizzo? No. Oh, here's another thing. Let's say there is an African-American female romantic lead. Oh, what does her hair look like? Does it look like, you know, poofy Afro hair? Is that the correct term? Does it? I have a question. Why movie studios choose who's going to be in movies, right? But I mean, yeah, they're bad, they're awful, they're media, et cetera, et cetera, they're materialistic Hollywood. But let's be fair. Is it really their fault? Let's say they picked a, um, they put Lizzo in the lead, romantic comedy lead and had her natural hair, right? Um, what would happen? Would people go to the movie? Would people find this believable? No. Yeah, I mean, come on, guys. Come on, people. Give me a break. Listen, I keep it real, okay? You got to keep, I mean, I'm not saying what should be the case. I'm asking you to tell me about your society. You're part of the society. You can tell me. Because if you take a random American dude, who probably is white just because they're the majority, right? And you say, do you want to go watch a Farrar Society overweight woman with natural African hair in a movie? They're going to say no. So do you want to watch, like, who's attractive? Uh, Blake, the, woman, the wife of uh, Ryan, uh, what's his face? Ryan Reynolds. Blake Lively. Do you want to go see Blake Lively in a movie? They say, yeah, okay, I'll see Blake Lively. That's fine, now, and you, and you, you can tell them, you can sit that white guy down, you can say, you're a bad person, white guy. You're racist. And you're ableist. What's, the, what's like the ableist that you're against overweight people? Is that ableist? Fattest? You're fattest. You're racist and you're fattest. And you can sit there and you can lecture that guy all day long and tell him he's a bad person. And he's going to say, what is he going to say? Look, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I... When I see Blake Lively in a movie, I, it interests me sexually. When I see Lizzo in the movie, it doesn't interest me sexually. I, what do you want me to do? I can't control this. How many of you, ladies, how many of you have yelled at some guy you know, maybe male relative, you say, why don't you like that girl? I introduced you to it. She's amazing. She's wonderful. You should marry her. And your guy friend slash brother slash cousin says, oh, I don't know, man. It's not, there's nothing that guy can do. I know you're angry at him. There's nothing he can do. Is that, that's natural, right? When we talk about what, what you're attracted to, it doesn't get more natural than that, does it? Does anyone, does anyone understand what I'm talking about? That's natural. But guess what? That's not natural at all. I mean, if we think about natural as somehow inborn in the species of human beings or in the spe some animal, what? If you lived 200 years ago, 
Has anyone ever seen the movie? Oh, you guys go back, go back and watch this. The South African television series Shaka Zulu, made in the 1980s. Who saw that? It's a pro-apartheid, but it's pro-apartheid in a subtle way. You can still enjoy it. You, you saw Shaka Zulu. You saw Shaka Zulu. Who else saw Shaka Zulu? Nobody else? Okay. So the African king is in Zululand at that time. Who are they surrounded by? Were they surrounded by skinny, who's that uh, person who is in Django Unchained? The, the, the woman. Kerry, Wa Kelly Washington. Kerry Washington? Kerry Washington? Yes. Correct? Okay. Are they surrounded by Kerry Washington hotties? <laughs> They're surrounded by people who look exactly like Lizzo. In fact, Lizzo's actually a little thin, to be honest. Lizzo's not, not hot enough for those kings. They want someone who's really big. Because if you're rich and you're powerful, that means you can eat as much as you want. Because everyone else is starving, right? So wealth is shown through being fat. That's why you go, guys, go to the, go to the National Art Gallery. Look at these pictures of you know, the 1700s, women lounging in the harem and stuff like that. They're always, they're always like, ladies well, needs to lose some weight. Because back then, that was the female ideal of beauty. I don't need to explain this to you. You know this already. Ideals of beauty change over time. And what are they shaped by? They're not shaped by nature. They're shaped by economic forces. What do I mean by that? What is attractive today? Guys, beautiful woman, is she gonna have dark skin or is she gonna have white skin? White. She has white skin. Why does she have to have white skin? Because white skin means you're not outside working. You get to stay inside all the time. You're rich. Nowadays, are we interested in someone with like super white skin, like pasty ass white skin? <laughs> no. We want someone who's tan. Why? Tan means you have luxury to go to the beach and sun yourself, or you're rich enough to have a tanning bed. So whatever indicates, well, oh, and by the way, uh, is someone who's overweight today, might, doesn't mean they're rich, it means they're poor. Why? They don't have time to exercise. They don't have enough money to buy good food. They, don't, they can't go to Whole Foods. They have to go to Kmart, not Kmart, uh, not even Walmart, 7-Eleven. Like they buy, you know, they eat from, like they eat Cheetos instead of meals, right? If they live in a food desert. So today, beauty is 100 years ago, and you guys, I mean, probably some of you live in families where this is still the case, where you bring this girl and you say, isn't she beautiful? And they say, she's all skin and bones. You need, to, you need to fatten her up, right? These, the, the, I'm not judging anything. These are, not more, these are not moral judgments. Standards of beauty are shaped by economic factors. But they feel natural. That's why my point, is, my point to you is they feel natural. Understanding uh, the way that Muslims should think about morality doesn't mean being a moral relativist. It doesn't mean you don't care about what people think around you. It means understanding that human beings are actually a lot more diverse than we, think of them to our, than we think of them today. They're more diverse in the world today and they're more diverse in history. And what's right and what's wrong can be different in different times and different places. Even if those things feel unnatural to you. Do you all understand? Does anyone have any like questions about what I just said, or concerns, or confusion? No? 
Okay. So when I ask you, do you think slavery is wrong? And you all raise your hands. You, th this is not a debate. Like we, we're not, we can't have a debate about whether slavery is wrong. That's like debating whether the sky is blue. Of course it's wrong. If you live in America, of course you think it's wrong. If you, most people in the world today, almost all people in the world today will think it's wrong. And they won't just think it's wrong because they're trying to look good. They'll think it's wrong because deep down in their gut, they think it's wrong. What, I'm, what we're going to talk about today is how do we understand why you have that feeling? And what's the, why, what's the crisis here? It's the same crisis we think about when we think about the Prophet I'm marrying Aisha. Or, or when we think about the fact that some Muslims are polygamous, that they're allowed to be polygamous. And a lot of women might say, I think that's absolutely wrong. Wait, so you think it's absolutely wrong what the Prophet did, and what the Companions did, and what the Quran allowed, and what Muslims did for centuries in some places? Because how do we understand the difference between what we feel and what our religion has in it? That's the big question we're asking, we're asking today. And I hope that you will be satisfied with the answer by the time we finish, inshallah. Okay? Um, so I'm just going to read you. These are just some very short passages from different texts. This is from a British, two British travelers in what's now northern Nigeria in the 1820s. Okay? Um, the house was in charge of one Bagirmi slave. So Bagirmi is an area near Lake Chad. Everyone knows where Lake Chad is? Everyone knows where Chad is? It's in Chad. It's, it's uh, maybe one or two countries over from Nigeria now. Uh, one Bagirmi slave who had been 24 years in bondage. He was pleased greatly when he found out that I had been near his home and the names of some of the towns made him clap his hands with pleasure. But when I asked him whether he should like to return, uh, he answered, no, no, I'm better where I am. I have no home now but this one. And what will my, master, what will my master's children do without me? He is dead and his son is dead. And who will take care of the gardens for his wives and his daughters if Musa, which is if Musa goes? No, uh, Musa is still a slave and so much the better for him. His country is far off and full of enemies. Here he, me, right? here I have a house and plenty to eat, thank God. And two months ago, they gave me a wife and kept my wedding uh, and made my wedding go for eight days. So these British guys are saying, basically, we, we want to try and help you escape. And he says, no, I, I, I've been here. This is my home. Who's going to take care of it without me? And I just got married, too. All right. Um, this is, the next section is from Ibn Hazm. Ibn Hazm is a famous scholar. He died in 1064, Common Era Force. 456 Hijri. He's from uh, what's now Spain. He wrote a book on love called The Ring of the Dove, Tawq al Hamama. He says, um, A trustworthy woman told me that she had seen in the house of Muhammad ibn Ahmad ibn Wahab, known as Rakiza, uh, of the sons of the Banu Dakhil tribe. And this woman came with, uh, she, this woman was in that family, a slave girl, very charming and pretty. Who had, had a, who had a master whom, de whom death suddenly took away. So her master suddenly died. And she was sold with his estate, and she refused to consent to have intercourse with men after him. And no man had intercourse with her until she met God most exalted and high. She was very skillful in singing, but she denied her knowledge of it, and rather preferred to be a servant and to abstain from joining with the, with the groups of women 
who go in for having children and pleasure and a good situation out of her uh, loyalty uh, to the one who had been hidden in a shroud and put in the ground, right? So her, ma her master dies, she had been his concubine, and then she basically refused to be with any man after that until she died. She didn't want to, she refused children and everything. The last example, I won't read you directly, but it's from the letters of a British woman, an English woman named Lady Wortley Montague. She died in the mid 1700s, and she was the wife of the British ambassador to Constantinople, Istanbul, in the early 1700s. And she has, a, I recommend write, reading these letters. There's about 100 or 200 pages of them, which just she wrote from Istanbul. And she spent a lot of time with the women in uh, Ottoman capital, which is really interesting because she goes inside the harems and talks to women. And she's a very good analyst and really um, accurate describer of what she sees and very honest. And uh, she, by the way, brings the science of vaccination against smallpox, which the Ottomans did. She brought that to England and introduced it to England. So she talks about a, 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 um, a Venetian woman she met who was one of the wealthiest women in Istanbul, a Venetian woman, who she was Christian. She had been captured when she was a young woman with her family, she'd been captured by an Ottoman admiral. And the Ottoman admiral had let her family go, but had kept her as his concubine, right? Uh, then her brother, a couple of years, her brother comes back and says, we wanna buy, we wanna ransom my sister back from you. And the woman describes what she thought about. She thought, look, if I get, go back now, I'm gonna get put in a convent, right? Because I'm like a fallen woman. I've had sex with this guy. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a disgraced woman. They're gonna put me in a convent. I'm gonna live as a nun for the rest of my life. Here, I re she actually says my husband's like, my master's very good looking. He's very generous, he's very loving to me. And she elects to stay with him. And she stays with him until he eventually he dies. And he leaves her one of the wealthiest widows in uh, Constantinople in Istanbul, one of the wealthiest women. Um, I introduced these examples to show you, I'm not arguing that slaves want to be slaves or something. What I'm arguing is that humans have all sorts of experiences, all sorts of, the, the, the breadth of human experience is so massive. People can want lots of different things. And you, you, you if, you're, if you're thinking, some of you might have thought, well, Professor Brown, um, you're reading, I see stories about this guy who wanted to stay a slave in, in northern Nigeria, or this woman who wanted to stay with her, who didn't want to be with any other man after her master died, or this woman who stayed in Istanbul and didn't want to go back to Venice. Well, who gave anyone the right to take them away in the first place? Surely they would have preferred never to have been enslaved. That's true. But, do you know what one of the main sources of slavery in human history is? That's one of them. It's not, probably not the biggest. You know what the biggest one is? Probably? Debt. Debt. Um, you become, you fall into debt, you become a slave to the person you can't pay back. But even more, well, probably around that, it's hard to say when you're talking about such a vast time and space, but uh, selling your kids. Selling your children into slavery. Not, maybe not, even not just your children. Uh, chieftains or, or kings or lords selling their subjects into slavery to make money. Uh, if you're a parent selling your child into slavery, not necessarily because you want to make money, but sometimes because you can't feed your child. 
and you just want someone else to take care of them. So uh, lots of times in human history, people have been sold into what we call slavery or have entered what we call slavery not because someone decided it was their right to do that to them, but because their own parent or their own leader put them into that situation. Sometimes, by the way, they voluntarily became a slave. And if you, wonder, if you want to know an example of this, you can just read in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, where it tells the Hebrews what to do when someone wants to do this. You have to go and you, you, you have to uh, do this symbolic act of attaching their ear to the door, with a, like piercing their ear to the door of the house. They don't stay like that, but it's just a symbolic act. When they want to become, like you're, they're, you're, they want to become your slave for life. Uh, why would people voluntarily become slaves? Because it's better than the other option. Who's here, who's, who here saw Mad Max uh, Fury Road? Only one person? Two people? Jeez, you guys, this is an amazing film. You should watch it. Really fascinating film. Uh, if you could, what would you rather do? Live in like the desert, you know, eating, I don't know what, lizards? Or living in that citadel where it's green and there's water and stuff like that? And if someone said, you need to become a slave to the Lord of the Citadel in order to live there, you'd be like, okay, that's better than dying of starvation. So we, we think about these, you know, you might say this isn't a serious statement. That's because we all live in tremendous luxury. How many people have you, how many people have, not, have gone a month without bathing? Who here has gone a month without bathing? Safe? I, no, but that's your normal lifestyle. I'm talking about, I'm talking about, no, I, has anyone here gone a month without bathing? Has anyone here gone a week without bathing? If you went a week without bathing, how would you feel? Would you feel disgusting? If you encountered someone else who had gone a week without bathing or a month without bathing, would you judge them? Would you look down on them? Yeah, you would. I mean, you're in, you might correct yourself, but your initial instinct would be, oh. Is this a moral issue? This is simply a matter of wealth. Lots of people in human history and lots of people today don't get to bathe. And it's not because they're not good people or because they're bad people or because their culture is bad or dirty. They just don't have access to water or a heater or the time. Again, so much of what we think of as moral is actually economic. So much of what we think about as economic actually has a moral impact on us. So I, I want to start out with these, these, just these three examples of how complicated human life can be. How complicated human... These are three examples. I could read you three cases of people who are miserable being slaves, of course. I could read you ten cases of people who are miserable being slaves. I chose to read these three to you because they show us, show us an, an aspect that we usually don't think about. But it's just as much an aspect of human life and of human history as people who are miserable and oppressed. Okay. Um, this issue of slavery is very hard to talk, talk about. It's very hard to talk about in the United States. It's very hard to talk about, I'd say, in the modern uh, world. It's certainly very hard to talk about in the modern West. Um, I think it's equally difficult to talk about in a lot of Muslim countries. I've had a lot of tense conversations about this, even in places like Istanbul or Cairo. Uh, but especially in the United States, it's, it's very difficult because of what I call the slavery conundrum. The slavery conundrum. Slavery conundrum is, who remembers the uh, Charlottesville protests? Was it two, three years ago now? 
Remember that? In the summer, it was in August of 2017, I believe. And so there was this, at University of Virginia, there's a statue of Thomas Jefferson, who founded the university. And um, uh, protests of sort of liberal, let's call them woke activists, wanted to take down the statue, wanted the statue taken down. Why do they want to take it down? What's, what do they have against Thomas Jefferson? Anybody? He's a slave owner, not just that. He had children with one of his slaves, uh, Sally Hemings, right? Um, so the guy who wrote, all men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, was having had a bunch of slaves and had kids with one of his slaves. Um, and those children were also slaves until they were eventually freed. So uh, then Donald Trump came out and gave a speech. And actually, he said something really profound. He said it in a way only he could manage. Hey, Kyle, it's all I can. Kyle read my whole book before it was uh, published. He was a very uh, helpful reader. Um, what did Donald Trump say? He said, George Washington had slaves. You're going to take down statues of George Washington? You know how there's an effort to rename highways, like Lee, like uh, the Highway Route 1, I think it used to be called Robert E. Lee Highway or something. They just renamed 29. 29. No, but 29, they didn't rename Lee Highway. But there's the, route, the section of Route 1 in Virginia, I think they renamed. Maybe it's called Jefferson Davis Highway. Jefferson Davis Highway, yeah. So there's the idea we need to rename things that are named after slave owners. Uh, if George Washington's a slave owner, and you renamed everything in the United States that was named after George Washington, I mean, first of all, it'd be a big deal. I mean, second of all, it's impossible. Why is it impossible? Why would that be essentially impossible? Because Americans would be like, what the hell are you talking about? George Washington was a great guy. Because you can't change the history. Well, you can't change history, but you can judge history. Here's the slavery conundrum. Here's the slavery conundrum. Um, I asked you, is slavery wrong? You said yes. Um, so let me ask you a question. Uh, let's say uh, there's some slavery that's good, right? Some slavery is okay, and there's some slavery that's bad. No? It's all bad, right? It's all bad? So this is the, this is the, the slavery conundrum. One is that we have three beliefs in our society that you have to have. But they cannot all be held at the same time. They are inter there is a contradiction between them. The first one is that slavery is a gross and intrinsic evil. What does that mean, gross? Gross evil means it's a serious evil. So when people talk about slavery, they talk about slavery as like one of history's greatest crimes. And it's intrinsic. So there's not... It, it, slavery is evil in and of itself. It's not evil when it's done badly. It's not evil when it's excessive. It's intrinsically evil. So was slavery evil during the time of Thomas Jefferson? Yes. Was slavery evil 100 years before Thomas Jefferson? Yes. Was slavery evil 1,000 years ago? Yes. This is these are beliefs that we hold in our society. So it's, gr it's a gross evil. You can't say like, uh, yeah, um, you know, yeah, this thing is bad, but it's not that bad. No, this is like inexcusable. You can never accept it. 
And it's in and of itself bad, no matter where and when. That's belief number one. Belief number two is that all slavery is slavery. There's no good and bad slavery. You can't say like, just imagine, imagine you go into like a party at work and someone's talking about slavery. You're like, yeah, but that's not that, that's not, that's okay slavery. What would happen to you in that work conversation? Just imagine, you'd be like hounded out of there. The third belief we have is that our past has some moral or even legal authority over us. Why do, we, why do we care about George Washington? Why do we care about Thomas Jefferson? Why do they matter? They matter because people believe those, their ideas and their, their personas have authority over us. We respect them. We revere them. They lead us. They guide us. But where's the, where's the, where's the contradiction? If slavery is a gross and intrinsic evil in all places and all times, and if there's no such thing as good slavery and bad slavery, there's just slavery. Then anybody who was involved in slavery or approved it or had slavery, had slaves, was complicit or guilty of a gross and intrinsic evil across space and time. So how can that person then be someone you seek moral advice from? Imagine this. Imagine there's a politician in America who comes up and says, I'm a, imagine, uh, who, who, who's like the most popular politician in this room? Are you guys like Bernie fans or Buttigieg fans? Or Bernie, okay, you guys are Bernie fans. Those of you who are not Bernie fans, pretend you're Bernie fans for a moment, okay? Imagine Bernie Sanders, like, I'm here, I'm Bernie, I got all these great ideas, but I gotta say, I also, I think slavery's okay. Is Bernie gonna make it in American political life? If you got up and said you think slavery's okay, you would be, shown out the door immediately. You would, be, you would not be allowed in public life. And yet, you would look to leadership, look for leadership to people who not only thought it was okay, but had slaves themselves. Here's the problem. Essentially nobody, and by I mean nobody, I mean like I've counted I think three or four people that we know of in world history people, not three or four groups, I mean three or four people that I've counted in world history before the late 1600s who thought that slavery in and of itself was wrong. So every, whatever religion, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, philosophy, uh, Aristotelian philosophy, Platonic philosophy, uh, Stoic philosophy, etc. Whatever philosophy, philosophical system you want, they did not, none of these held that slavery was an intrinsic, gross and intrinsic evil in and of itself. So if you were going to apply the slavery, the, the, these two principles, that slavery is a gross and intrinsic evil across space and time, and that all slavery is slavery and evil, you, you would basically be saying that all of human, all of human, humanity's moral and religious heritage prior to the 1600s should just be thrown into the garbage can. Now, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But lot, most people are not going to accept that, right? Just like most Americans aren't going to accept saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to call Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. anymore because George Washington was a slave owner. Do you have a question? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, 
creation of race as an idea. That's when people are actually having serious debates in the Vatican about. I have a question. Yeah, fine. Uh, I, I understand your question, but. Native Americans are human or not? That, that, that. Here's a debate. D does slavery have to be racist to be wrong? Does it have to be based on race to be wrong? No, I'm just saying, it, at that era, yeah. slavery takes a whole different, it becomes a global trade, yeah. and it manufactures race. It puts certain yeah. people in a, lower, in a lower place. No one was debating who's human and who's not, and that would justify enslaving them before that point. Okay, uh, yeah, so you, you, and that's a good point, right? But people, of course, had lots of debates about who's human, who's not, who's not um, and have look, looked upon other groups as, as inferior or not deserving of the same rights. Um, so that's, uh, that's certainly part of what really shocks a lot of, like, Enlightenment European thinkers, and by European also American thinkers. That a lot of them are shocked by the, the racial justification for slavery in the 1600s and 1700s. Uh, but we'll discuss there's other stuff going on as well. Um, why, I have a question, why does the slavery conundrum exist? Does everyone under understand the slavery conundrum? That's why, by the way, it's very difficult to have conversations about this. If you, if you start talking to people about this, and I've talked to lots of people about this, they will pretty quickly get extremely upset. And they won't just get upset because it's a painful topic, it's a difficult topic. It's a, they'll get upset because they, their, their brain stops, you can't compute, does not compute at a certain point. If you say, look, um, for example, uh, why, did, why did some of the apostles follow Jesus in Christianity? Why did some of them have slaves? Why didn't Jesus condemn slavery? Why did the Christian church allow slavery? Why did St. Augustine say it's fine? Why did all these, why, why, why? Why did St. Thomas Aquinas accept slavery as natural? Well, they didn't know it was wrong at the time. Okay, so what you're telling me is they didn't know, but you do know, right? So why do you pay attention to what they said? I mean, would you pay attention to somebody, would you take moral advice or legal advice from somebody who didn't know slavery was wrong? who didn't know what like five and six-year-olds today know. People, get, people are in a choice, faced with a choice of condemning their past or saying that those people in the past were actually aware that, that maybe slavery wasn't wrong for them. But if it's not wrong for them, then slavery can't be wrong across space and time. It's just wrong at a certain time. But then when does that time start? When did slavery start being wrong? How do you explain that? So this is very uncomfortable for people to think about. The reason this slavery conundrum exists is actually a, a feature of, or a result of abolitionist discourse, the abolitionist movement in, the, in, in Britain and the, in the United States in the 18th century, especially the late 1700s, uh, uh, very, actually very late 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s. If you're an abolitionist activist, you're trying to end slavery. Um, you go and you start talking to the southern slave owner. You say, hey, southern slave owner, slavery's bad. You need to get rid of slavery. And he says, hey, look, look at my slaves. They're happy. I'm teaching them Christianity. I'm teaching them how to read. They're so, they, they retire. They're taken care of. Um, 
What do you have to complain about? And by the way, look at your industrial workers in the north. They're miserable. I mean, these guys seem to be happier than your industrial workers. The only way you can win this argument is by saying, no, slavery itself, that very category itself, the, in the phenomenon itself is, is intrinsically evil. And there can never be an assisted situation where there's happy slaves and their slavery becomes okay. You have to condemn it. You have to end the negotiation because that's actually how slavery survived in a lot of places, let's say British India and parts of British Africa and French Africa or Dutch Southeast Asia. It survived because people said, hey, slaves here are actually okay. It's not like slavery in the Caribbean or slavery in the Americas. So abolitionists realized that if they started getting negotiations about good slavery and bad slavery, that it would just be, it would be used as a device to extend the, the institution of slavery in other places. So you have to, the only way you can end it as a phenomenon in the world is to have this like really black and white logic. Slavery is evil in all types and all, kind, in all shapes and all kinds. It was always evil. It needs to be gotten rid of completely. Okay. Um, but uh, this, this is kind of a weird situation because We've been talking about slavery this whole time. But how do we know what slavery is? And we've been talking with, let's say you're, let's say you're a, uh, um, let's say you're someone like Benjamin Rush, one of the founding fathers, who's a very anti-slavery, a fierce abolitionist activist. Um, you're committed to ending slavery. What, is, what are you committed to ending? Really? Okay, you don't control the destiny of a human being. Um, My mother delivered me as a free person. Mm -hmm. Nobody has the right to. Own so your mother didn't control your destiny? You're a Muslim, right? Right. You're not a Hindu. Your mother could have made you raise you as a Hindu. Would not have controlled your destiny? Um, if someone keeps you in a life of poverty, aren't they controlling your destiny, even if you're technically free? So here's the, the question is, uh, if you're an abolitionist activist in the 1800s, and you say, I want to go and I want to end slavery everywhere, how are you going to find it? What are you going to look for? Yes? Transactional exchange of humans. So like when I um, got married, right? I gave my wife a mahar. Okay, I gave my wife the mahar, fine. But uh, in other societies, the, well, let's say India, the wife's family gives mahar to the husband's family. They have to pay them to take their daughter off their hands. I don't know, that's how I see it. I don't want to judge, right? But so, um, or, you know, I've got all these workers, and you're going to take them, and they're going to live with you, and you're, they're going to work on your, your railroad or something like that, and you're going to pay me for that. So yeah, there's a transaction, but here's the question. A, a lot of people look at Islamic marriage, they say, oh, what's this mahar? Is this like you guys are paying for marriage? Ew, that's gross. That's not romantic. I mean, so pe lots of people in human history have engaged in relationships that we don't think of in the United States as being tra as transactional. But they're actually totally transactional. I mean, even uh, to this day, you know, if you really like, if you really get down to the nuts and bolts of what marriage is, 
uh, and you know you see families who are like you know trying to make ends meet and wife dumps her husband because he's not put, putting bread on the table uh, you know at the end of the day he's got to he's got to he's got to perform if he can't bring home the bacon he's got to go Okay, so I mean, so so you you might be looking for let's say you, you're going to look for transaction. Okay, transaction because slavery is treating humans like property. Right. So that's one bit, one major definition of slavery is humans as property. This goes all the way back to Aristotle, the idea of humans as property. Um, and you also see this in the the Quran, right? The Quran talks about Abdul Mamluk, a slave who's owned. Um, Let's talk about, uh, the other thing you said is consent. Um, yeah, okay, maybe somebody wants to be in this situation, so we accept it. What about women who want to be in polygamous marriages? Maybe we, more Muslims, we are okay with that, but how do a lot of people see that? Or yeah, look at you, you're wearing hijab. But I, don't, I know you don't want to do that. You want to be like, you know, you want to be free. You want to be like American women. You're just, you're being forced to do it by your patriarchal environment because you're brainwashed. I just need to free you from that. So here's the problem. Uh, if you decide you know what people want more than what they want, their consent doesn't matter. Right, but there's not. But that's that's actually not answering your direct question. The direct question is, you're going to look for situations people are not. They said, I don't want to be in this situation. Then you say, okay, this is slavery. This person doesn't want to be in that situation. Here's a question: uh, Lots of us don't want to be in situations that we're in, and no one's coming and liberating us. So there's lots of people in America like, I don't want to work at McDonald's. I don't want to be poor. Why aren't they being liberated? Well, they chose that. They chose to work. Really? Did the people choose to work in like menial labor positions? So the question here is, how do you measure consent? I mean, what to what extent do people really have choices in their lives? How do you decide the difference between what you're going to try and get rid of, which is slavery, and someone else who's just in a position they don't like being in? And they've been forced into that by their situation. And here's another thing. Imagine somebody's really poor and miserable, and they don't want to be in that situation, so they consensually make themselves the property of another person because that person is going to take care of them. Now you're going to be in a situation where you're saying, I'm going to get rid of this because this is property, but now you've gone against that person's will and their consensual decision and put them in a situation they don't want to be in. Does everyone understand? Okay, then what about, uh, uh, so we talked about one, you're gonna look for people who are kind of being treated as property. Two, you're gonna look for people who are in situations that they don't consent to. Third, what's another thing? Come on, guys. Didn't anyone see Amistad? This is a great movie, by the way. What does Jumanji Hodgson want? He wants freedom. What does Braveheart want? <laughs> you guys saw Braveheart, right? Are you too, too old for too young for that? 
Freedom, right? People want free. So you could look for people who are unfree. We could go around the world. We could look for people who are pre people who treat as property. We look for people who are, let's say, in coercive relationships, who are in, being coerced. And we could look for people who are unfree. Here's a problem. Um, besides the ones I just talked about, uh, who can define property for me? Things you can buy and sell? A possession? Hmm? A possession? Something that you possess. So what does that mean? What, is it, what does a possession mean? You have control over something. Okay. So you can you control it. You can uh, decide what to do with it. Right? You can sell it. Uh, so what's the difference in being a slave and being someone's kid? Kids are here, brother. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm asking you seriously. So in our society, it's clear. Like, okay, I can't, um, I can't kill my kid, God forbid, right? I can't even, pun I can't physically beat him really seriously. I have the right to reasonable discipline, right? I can't, um, but I can choose. I can choose what he eats. I can choose what he believes. I can choose who he sees. I can choose how he's educated. I can choose whether I get him vaccinated or not. I can choose if I had to raise him in some weird cult. I can make all these choices. But I can't, I can't sell him. I can't hurt him too bad. So that, that's, that's the difference between, in our society, we can see here, there's a difference between, let's say, possession and a child. What about pets? Who has a pet? Okay, so I have a question. What kind of pet do you have? Dogs. <laughs> hey, I'm just showing you. No, she's not here to make you feel bad. Okay, so let's say you have a dog. Uh, do you love your dog? Of course. Would you ever kill your dog? Definitely not. Are you allowed to kill your dog? Legally, no. Illegally, you are allowed to kill your dog. We're allowed to kill our dog. Yeah, and uh, if you go, I, I read all the, all the laws on animal cruelty in the United States, different states. So it depends what state you're in. Some states, uh, as long as you don't do it in a nasty, like a vicious way where you're causing unnecessary harm, you can kill your dog. We'll just put it at that. But, and you're your dog's master. Your dog, I mean, the way we even think about it, that's your property. But you're, when you think about your relationship with your dog, you don't think about these aspects. So it's interesting to think about like pets as possessions what that means. So, uh, but in a lot of other states, your pet is your possession, but you can't, um, you can't like break it like you'd break a pencil. Like a pencil is my possession, but I can't, I can't break it. I have a plant, can I, chop down a, can I chop down a tree? In Virginia, yeah, in Maryland, maybe not, because maybe there is certain regulations about um, how many trees have to be in a town or in a, in a property and you have to get permission. So even like between two states that are right next to one another, for things that aren't, we wouldn't think about as like animals, like pets, just trees, there's different uh, degrees of control that someone has over their property. Now, this is all in one society, in American society, but now w this isn't good enough because remember, we're abolitionists, we're trying to go and we're gonna try and end slavery worldwide. What about property in other societies? So if you go to like ancient Rome, guess what? A parent 
can kill their child. Let's say Rome in 100 BC. A parent is allowed to kill their child. It's called patria potestas, the right of the paterfamilias, the power of the head of the family. They can kill anybody in their family. So what's the difference between child and possession in that society? So the, here's the problem. When we talk about slavery in world history, you can't just talk about what definition makes sense to us. Now you have to talk about a definition that's going to work all over the place. So that's property. We'll, I'll, end, I'll end this session in one second, but I just want to finish these three issues. So we talk about property, we talked about freedom. What's freedom? Tell, tell me what freedom is. Okay. Can you do whatever you want? Who said that? Good, good, good answer. I know freedom because I've watched a lot of movies. I can tell you what freedom is. Who's here saw basically any Western? Freedom is get on your cow on your horse and you can ride onto the open range. No one's going to stop you. Right? Freedom is you can drive your car live how you want to live, right? But actually, can we do whatever we want? Nope. We have all sorts of, forget about social pressures. The law constrains our actions. You can do whatever you want, but there might be a punishment for it. So what's freedom then? Freedom is doing whatever you're allowed that you want to do within certain limits, okay? What's the definition of slavery then? So there's slavery and there's freedom. So what's the definition of slavery? Slavery is the opposite of freedom, correct? When your free will is stripped. Your free will is stripped. So uh, let's say I'm a slave. And um, I do my work for the day and then the master says, okay, you can go home and rest now. So I go home and rest. And I can sleep or I can play cards with my friends. I'm choosing, to, I can choose, right? So actually I do have free will. I just have less choices than free people. So I can still do whatever I want just within a narrower circle. So freedom is not the opposite of slavery. Um, freedom and slavery are just two different degrees of limitation of your choice. Do you understand? And that where that limitation is placed and how it changes is going to be based on different societies. So I'm free in America, I can, what can I do? I can um, dress how I want, right? I can go, um, I can run with my top shirt off if I'm a guy. But in other states, maybe I'm not allowed to run with my shirt off. It would be inappropriate. In some places, women can go topless, like New York City. Other places, they can't. So uh, exactly where you draw the line between, you know, where, where is the, the, where's the, the restraints on a free person or free on a slave is going to, again, in one society, it makes sense. But the problem is it doesn't work for one society. We're trying to go across the world, and we're not just trying to go across the world. We're trying to go back in history. The third thing we talked about was coercion, property, freedom, and coercion. How do you measure coercion? When is someone coerced? You don't give them the choice. 
if you don't do this, then this is the, these are the consequences. So okay. The person is forced to follow, follow the path. So people, let's say children in schools in Britain, in England, they have to, parents have to allow their children to be taught in their sex ed class. They have to be taught now certain things about like LGBT issues and transgender stuff. And the parents have no choice. Is that coercion? Is that a fundamental right to teach your children what you think is correct about family and life and sexuality? Um, let's think about another situation. Is who has the right to teach the children this aspect of the social behavior? Should it come from a teacher? Should it come from the parents? Uh, I agree. This is, a, this is a debate. My question is, when do we decide people are being coerced? And what, how much coercion do we allow? And in what areas of life? I don't like coercion. I, I don't like coercion either. But there's all sorts of areas in our lives where we're coerced and we don't complain. We're coerced to drive under a certain speed limit. We're coerced to pay taxes. We're coerced to, uh, uh, some places, to keep your yard looking a certain way. We're coerced to, to treat our children in certain ways or not to treat them in other ways. So my point is that uh, how do you define one, how's, where do you get one definition of coercion that you're going to go around the world and identify when is this acceptable or unacceptable? You might. You might say, I have a certain idea of where I think it's, where I think it's acceptable or unacceptable, and I'm going to go impose this in other places. But let's be very clear. Those other societies might not think that your definition of coercion is appropriate. So what you're really doing is imposing your beliefs on other societies. So the problem is, when we go throughout the world or throughout world history trying to identify what we think is slavery, even if we try to come up with definitions for slavery, like property, or someone who's not free, or someone who's being coerced, we're really applying our understandings of property, our understandings of freedom, our understandings of coercion. So what we're really doing is applying our definition of slavery throughout world history, which might be acceptable, but uh, what do you do about the fact that other people have their own moralities? Or other people have their own notions of freedom, their own notions of property, their own notions of coercion. Think about that just within our own Muslim families in the United States. Um, let's say one of our kids wants to get married to somebody. And the parents don't like them. And they say, you're not going to marry this person. And the daughter or the husband, the guy says, okay, you know what, fine, I won't. Is that person being coerced? Is that person free? A lot of people in the society would look at that person and say, that person is, is not free and that person is being coerced. But other people would say, look, that's actually just them obeying their parents and that's appropriate. Who's going to decide which is the correct view? And in that decision, aren't they, aren't they engaging in what we would consider a very problematic imposition of values on other people? Okay. That was one part that we discussed. And now I think we're supposed to have, where did Muhammad go? Now they have breakout discussions? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, yes, yes. I'm a little bit late. I'm sorry. Oh, no, so um, we want to break out into groups and talk about what was discussed thus far. Can, um, I, can I give you guys a, maybe a, something to, just to think about as yes. a potential issue? Are prisoners in American jails slaves? Yes. Discuss amongst yourselves. Oh, and here's another question. 
<laughs> were my ancestors, at least some of them, when they came here in the 1650s as indentured servants, were they slaves? Do you know what the punishment for an indentured servant fleeing in Virginia or Maryland was? Mutilation or death. Mutilation or death. You guys know what indentured service is? So I want you to ask yourself this question. Are prisoners in American jails, are they prisoners in American prisons slaves? We're indentured servants slaves. Nobody thought that black skin meant you, were, you, should, you could be enslaved. In fact, most slaves in Islamic history were Slavic or Turkic. Right? So, um, uh, anti-black racism exists in Islamic civilization for the same reason it exists in um, European civilization. Because people look down on people from Sub-Saharan Africa uh, because they were originally, like, they, they were essentially vulnerable and victimized. People who, were, if they were brought into that society, would be uh, in a position of servant. Um, but it's interesting, just for your, sometimes uh, you may have heard this idea that if you, if you said, like, the prophet, and sometimes you say that he's black, that that's, like, an act of kufr, to say that the prophet is black. Some Muslim scholars say this, but... They will specify. That's because for most societies, at least like northern hemisphere societies, that's an insult. But if you were in a if you were in a society where like black is beautiful or something, that wouldn't be bad. It would actually be a compliment. So you have to understand that even even like scholars are very aware that uh, there's social conventional values put on skin color that has nothing to do with like truth or falsehood or anything like that. Okay, uh, so I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to explain to you very clearly that there's no 
in, find me a Christian thinker or a Jewish thinker or a Buddhist thinker or a Confucian thinker or a Greek philosopher who said that slavery, slavery qua slavery is wrong. You just don't find it. There's one person named Gregory of Nyssa who died in 394, the Common Era. He was from Cappadocia, what's now Turkey. He had an argument, he's a Christian bishop. He said slavery is wrong because humans are created in the image of God and it's impossible to own an image of God. Good argument. No one else, you don't see this except one guy in the 1200s, a German lawyer named, oh gosh, von Remke, I think was his name. He wrote a book called The Saxon Spiegel, The Saxon Mirror, book of German law, earliest book of German law we have. In that he says the same thing, but he repeats this argument. I haven't seen any other instance of this at all. Then in the 1500s, you start seeing a few like uh, Venetian and uh, Florentine scholars saying, you know, slavery is really injurious, it causes a lot of harm. Then in the, the, the late 1600s, you see this Quaker abolitionist movement. It's really in the 1700s that you start seeing, like amongst Enlightenment thinkers, like Voltaire or Condorcet or um, uh, Diderot or people like that, the idea that slavery is like, it's, it's, a, it's a moral evil. And then after that, the, the kind of the ball really gets rolling. The snow, it really starts snowballing. But what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make is, a lot of times we, the, the, the narrative that that history of abolition and the abolitionist narrative is one of what you can think about moral awakening. So it's the idea that gradually people start waking up to the moral evil of slavery. What I'm trying to tell you is there's no moral awakening. I mean, literally everybody's snoozing. I, I mean, except for one or two people, and one or two individuals. There's lots of condemnations of slavery prior to the 1600s, but it's slavery of other. Like, you can't enslave these people, you can't enslave these people. You can't enslave Muslims, you can't enslave Christians, you can't enslave our tribe. It's not a criticism, they're not criticisms of slavery as uh, per se or qua slavery. Now I want to ask you a question. What ha what's happening in the 1700s and the 1800s that might explain this snowball? Revolution. I mean, Think of it, this is kind of obvious when you think about it, but people don't think about it. Um, if you were a human being and you wanted to move like a big brick or a big stone, how do you move a big stone in 1000 BC or 1000 AD or 1500 AD? You get a bunch of horses or a bunch of people to pull the stone. If you want to move a big stone today, what do you do? You get like a excavator or a forklift or a bulldozer which burns off fossil fuel and can do it for you. Uh, it's not a coincidence that the abolitionist movement starts in north, northern North America, so the northern, the northern colonies become the northern United States, and Britain, two areas that had unprecedented concentrations of wealth and did so without slave labor. By the way, Americans like to complain about British oppression, but the fact of the matter is American colonies were like the fattest, most sugar-consuming colonies. I mean, they had extreme. The rich people had, and more people had, better lifestyle in North America than in almost any other place in the world at the time. They just didn't like big taxes. But it's not a, it's not a coincidence that abolitionism really starts in the two places where the Industrial Revolution first takes hold, 
and where unprecedented levels of wealth and capital then amassed without slave labor. Does everyone understand? So it fell off? And by the way, if you, you can go and pass a law and say that slavery is prohibited, but when we look at the end of slavery in world history from the, let's say, mid, late 1700s until today, uh, laws don't really take effect. I mean, the law doesn't become reality until the economy changes. If you have an economy that's relying on human labor, until that economy changes, uh, that labor structure won't change. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you can't legislate. Uh, you can only legislate so much about people's rights before this economic reality like, holds those, those laws back. They're, 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 not, they're not followed. So abolition in name becomes abolition in fact when economies change. All right. Uh, and a quote, which I find it's incredible, which is important to keep in mind. I think it's a, summarized this well. It comes from Aristotle and his politics. Aristotle says something ingenious. He says, uh, there will be slaves until looms, the looms, like the things that we've plopped, until looms power themselves. Mm. It's actually correct. <laughs> really interesting. Okay. And oftentimes when I say this, people say, well, there's modern day slavery. We already got into that debate. As a highly politicized debate, um, whether or not slavery today is really slavery or not. Okay. Um, so I, I, we, we talked about the problem of defining slavery in world history. We talked about the problem of thinking about moral change and what, what defines morality, to what extent there's like moral realities out there in the universe versus, versus is morality a reflection of custom and economy. By the way, saying morality is oftentimes a reflection of custom and economy is not, to, it's not denigrating morality. It's just acknowledging that. It's actually acknowledging a reality. So uh, I love this example. I've used it before, but I'll use it again. If you go to restaurants in southern China, there are restaurants that just serve dog meat, that serve dog meat, and that's what they serve. People go there to eat dog meat. Now, if you gave a plate of dog meat to somewhere in America, they would find it morally and physically, they would physically feel sick their stomach, and they would be morally disgusted too. Chinese people are just as human beings, just as human as Americans. They're no stupider, no less morally aware than American people are. So the things that sometimes feel the, the, the grossest or the most unnatural to you are completely natural to other people. This is custom. You read uh, Herodotus' histories. Herodotus died around 420 BC. Quotes a line of poetry from this famous Greek poet Pindar. It says, custom is king of all. It's a great line. Okay. Um, so let's talk about slavery in Islam. But I want to make one, one other point which is important. No society that had slaves, which is most human societies, certainly every civilization and almost every society that had slaves, no society that had slaves had the idea of abolishing slavery until the early modern period. You understand? So until the until essentially the 1600s and 1700s, 1700s, no society that had slaves had the idea of abolishing slavery. 
So this idea that somehow like there's something about Christianity or the West that is that doesn't like slavery, that this is just not true. Christians were just as happy to have slaves and to justify slavery as anyone else. And it wasn't until economies had changed that, that really became an argument that anyone bought. Okay. Um, so what the the, the world in which Islam is revealed to the religion is a world in which slavery is a reality. It's a reality in the Near East, it's a reality in the Roman world, it's a reality in everywhere, right? Uh, something that, again, we've talked about the challenge of defining slavery worldwide. For the sake of, of convenience, we'll just say slavery as a world concept, even though we've decided, we've already discussed, it's actually really hard to say what exactly is slavery in world history. But let's just, every society, almost every civilization in most societies, that's something that we could probably make some argument as a slavery. Okay. Um, what is it? Islam actually changes a lot of this. And this is this is not debated, right? So what I mean what do I mean by that? I mean some Orientalists can't come to me right now and say, oh, you're just giving a rosy vision. You're just giving an you No, know, actually everything I'm saying right now is cannot be debated. I'm telling you, it cannot be debated. The Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet are are obsessed with emancipation. What's the difference between emancipation and abolition? Emancipation is the idea of freeing people. Abolition is the idea of getting rid of slavery as a catalyst or as a phenomenon. These are different. So the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet are obsessed with emancipation. In the Quran, you have the idea that, well, first of all, that believers should just free slaves. right? That if you accidentally kill somebody, you have to free a slave. That if you break certain kinds of oaths, you have to free a slave. Or if you if you don't have a, a, a slave, you can fast. If you can't fast, or you um, uh, feed four people, and if you can't feed people, you can fast. Right? Um, then uh, part of you is a cat. Part of the, one of the groups that can receive the cat is money that goes to freeing slaves. Uh, the Quran also talks about mukataba. Mukataba is when. A slave wants to buy back their own freedom on installments. That if they do that, you should agree to that. Okay. Uh, these are these are all mentioned in the Quran. The hadiths are so full of, of examples of the Prophet ordering or recommending freeing of slaves. If you if someone hits their slave and causes blood to flow, has to be, the slave should be free. If someone causes injury to the slave or mistreats him, the slave should be free. If uh, if there's a an eclipse, you should free a slave on an eclipse. If uh, you want to to assure your, your safety and your salvation on the Day of Judgment, free a slave. Un, unshackling your slave is to will unshackle your own limbs on the Day of Judgment. Just endless. In fact, not only are there, I mean, you could probably have a whole book just of hadiths encouraging freeing slaves. There's so many hadiths that were made up to free slaves. So it's not just that the Prophet said, it's like Muslims, some little factory was just churning out forged hadiths as well about freeing slaves. So like, I don't know who forged Hadith, but they were obsessed with emancipation as well. I don't know if any philosophical religious tradition is as obsessed with emancipation as the Islamic tradition. I feel like, I, I say that as a Muslim, but I feel 100% confident saying that, regardless of who would come and debate that with me, whatever their religious background or philosophical background. And I, these are examples that we can give from the Quran, from reliable Hadiths. And even, by the way, let's say all these Hadiths are made up. Let's say the Quran was made up by Muslims in 800 AD because it was some big conspiracy. Then those people would be obsessed with emancipation. So it doesn't even have to be authentic. There's still obsession with it. 
this is played out in film. The, the, if you go, if I go, because there's a principle that's agreed upon, which is actually cited as a hadith, but it's not a very reliable hadith, which is that God wants freedom. The lawgiver wants freedom. So if you, uh, if you uh, free your slave, and you're not really serious, or you're joking, they're still free. If you go to like uh, your, your slave, you say, okay, after you're done working today, you're free to go, you're free, you know, like, i.e. you're free of work. Boom, you've accidentally freed your slave. If you say to your son, like, Ya Ibni, come here, you've actually freed him because you're not allowed to own your own relatives. Boom, that frees. Of course, you didn't intend this stuff, but all, the law is construed so that any possibility of freedom is taken advantage of. If you're walking down the street and you run into uh, like uh, a woman, you bump her and you say, Ya Hurra, Asif Ya Hurra. And it turns out she's your free, your slave woman. She gets free because you called her a free woman, just like as a sign of respect. You didn't even know it was your own slave. Uh, I could go. I could give endless examples of this in books of film and in also fatwas and in also in court cases. So it's not just theory; it's also in practice. Um, okay. The what Islam does, and this is again not debated. Although interestingly, it's not stated clearly in the Quran, but it's, it's not debated. It's just it's understood as being part of Islamic law, the Sharia, from the very beginning. You, the, the main ways that people were enslaved in, in the Near East and in world history were closed off. You cannot have debt slaves. You cannot enslave someone for committing a crime. People cannot sell their children into slavery. People cannot sell their, themselves into slavery. The only way that someone can be enslaved in Islamic law is for of a Muslim captures a non-Muslim outside the abode of Islam. So you can't enslave like a, a Christian or Jew or Hindu who's living under Muslim rule. You can't enslave that. If you you have to go outside the abode of Islam, and if you capture a non-Muslim, then you can enslave them. And by the way, there was even a lot of debate amongst Muslim scholars about whether you can, uh, if you go, let's say, outside the abode of Islam to the steppes of Russia or to sub-Saharan Africa and some chief or some parent wants to sell their child, or some chief wants to sell like 500 of his people to you, can you, as a Muslim, can you uh, buy that? And one opinion is, no, you can't, because these people were not enslaved legally. The other opinion, which ends up winning, which is oddly enough the more liberal opinion, says if it's acceptable in their culture, then uh, you can buy those slaves. So if it's acceptable in that, in that people's culture for them to sell their children to slavery, or to sell their people into slavery, you can buy them as slaves already. So the, uh, two really important changes brought in by Islamic law. One, obsession with emancipation. Two, uh, closing off all the doorways past into slavery except capture and war. And uh, three, the third one, is a high standard of treatment for slaves. Very high standard of treatment. And this is based on the lots of hadiths, but the main asal is the Prophet's uh, hadith of Islam that uh, They are your brothers that God has put under your control. So feed them from what you eat, clothe them from your clothing, and do not burden them overly. And if you burden them too much, then you have to help them. So this is very important hadith that's in Bukhari, Muslim, and all the, all the main hadith questions are uh, numerous narrations. And that's the asal, that's like the main principle. And uh, there's lots of other examples I can go into about the importance of uh, good treatment of your slaves. It, one of them being that, لا يدخل الجنة 
say, say a Melika, right? So a pers the person who is a bad owner of slaves will not enter heaven. This is a hadith in Sunnah ibn Majah. Uh, in addition to the fact that it's well attested in hadith in Sunnah ibn Majah and other books, that the Prophet on his deathbed, what was he saying? He was muttering, Prayer, prayer, and those that you're, you possess regularly. Use, take care of your prayer and take care of those people you possess. Okay. Um, so let, now I want to talk about the abolition of slavery in Islam. Okay. Um, and it's accurate. It is accurate to say that prior to the 1800s, no Muslim suggested the idea of abolishing slavery. That is totally accurate. Remember, it's accurate to say that in world history, pretty much nobody uh, proposed that idea prior to the, to the 1700s, or even the late 1600s. Remember, people who started the abolitionist movement isn't explained by moral awakening, it's explained by economic and technological change. And yeah, that economic and technological change didn't happen in Muslim societies. And by the way, we can have a lot of debate about whether we think industrialization is good or bad. When now that there's like two billion more people who were belching car fumes and things like that into the world, we'll see how long our world survives. I'm not so sure if modernization is a good idea to begin with, but I have no idea. I'm not gonna judge. I mean, I don't have the knowledge. Not wise enough to judge. But uh, so it's, it's when people say like abolitionism is a Western idea. Yeah, that's true. But it's not a Western idea because there's some gene in Western civilization or in Christianity that explains it. It's because the Industrial Revolution emerged in the West. Uh, but uh, Muslims scholars make lots of totally legitimate arguments for why we should embrace the idea of abolition. So I'm going to go from uh, through a list of Muslim responses to abolition. I'm going to go through a couple of different responses that Muslims have had. The first is the most uh, morally outraged. Right? So the first one is the one that's like the, the strongest moral outrage at Islam. Uh, sorry, at uh, slavery. And the least is the least morally outraged. The last is the least morally outraged. But what you'll see is that. Um, the cost of these uh, approaches is directly proportional to their moral outrage. So the first one that's the most morally outraged at the idea of slavery also exerts the highest cost on our understanding of religion. In fact, it really acts asks us to totally reconceptualize what it means to be Muslim. And that's something that I don't think is correct, personally. So the first approach and this is only held by a few Muslim thinkers, like Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan, who's a famous uh, Indian Muslim scholar who died in 1898. He basically says that um, sl actually slavery was never supposed to be allowed in Islam. And that the Quran, like all the verses of the Quran that talk about mamalikat aymanukum and uh, freeing slaves and stuff like that, these were all only accepting slavery that already existed. So they, they affirmed current slavery, but that after that, there is not supposed to be any more slavery. The problem with this approach is two things. One, you lose essentially the entirety of the Islamic legal intellectual tradition, because it was all totally wrong. It was 
completely misunderstood the Quran. The second problem is, it doesn't really even satisfy the moral demands of modernity regarding slavery, because if slavery is really an absolute evil throughout space and time, God shouldn't have allowed it even for those existing relationships. God shouldn't have said, you know, uh, you can have the slaves you have right now, but no new ones. It should have been, get rid of it immediately. And even that, even Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan doesn't argue that. The second approach says, okay, slavery was impossible to get rid of immediately because it was too economically, socially prevalent and ubiquitous in life in Arabia. But that the Quran set, the Prophet set Muslims on trajectory to end slavery. And they should have done that right away. Like, so if you have, if you take into, take together the fact that Islam closes off almost all whites into slavery, and you combine that with the emphatic encouragement to free slaves, the end result is like kind of slavery was sort of ended on its own. And it should have done that within the first couple of decades, but Muslims didn't get the message and they kind of went off the rails. So that, uh, that argument is better in the sense that you're not arguing that we've misunderstood the Quran or misunderstood the Sunnah of the Prophet. We just haven't lived up to their expectations. Um, the problem with that argument is, though, is that it doesn't really give modern people what they want because it doesn't say that if slavery was an absolute evil, then why did God and the Prophet allow it at all, right? Um, idolatry was eliminated completely. Idolatry was very prevalent in, the, in Arabia and the Middle East. But there was no negotiation. There was no, oh, get rid of it when you can. So you don't really get that, you still don't get this moral condemnation that a lot of modern people would want. The third approach, and I think this is, the, in my opinion, the, the most accurate approach, is that uh, eliminating, is that emancipation is an aim of the Sharia. And this is not a debate. You can't debate this. Emancipation is an aim of the Sharia. It is one of the maqasad of Sharia. We know that because it's long been a principle amongst Muslim scholars that God wants freedom. God looks expectantly towards freedom. That's clear from the Quran, it's clear from the Sunnah of the Prophet, it's clear from the fiqh of jurists, it's clear from how that fiqh functioned in Muslim society. And that, uh, there's, the problem is that there's a difference between emancipation and abolition. But as I said before, Abolition really wasn't on the menu. It wasn't considered a... It would be like saying, you know, getting rid of rain or getting rid of snow or something. It was, it was like a feature of life. Slavery was a feature of life that people couldn't imagine being able to be rid of because they needed human labor. They needed cheap human labor to be able to do things. One, you have the capacity to have uh, um, things moved and services performed without relying on humans and animals. Then you don't need those humans and animals to do it anymore. And in that context, in the, in the in a, in a post-industrial, post, in the era of post-industrial revolution, we know Muslims no longer have, there's, no one has any need for slavery. So in that situation, the best way to fulfill the aim of Sharia is to end the class of slavery as a whole. The next option, which is also accurate, but I, I mean, I don't find it as compelling as this one, is to say that uh, because the only way you can get slaves is to capture them in war, that the person who's in charge of political decisions about making war and making peace, namely the Muslim leader, can simply decide, 
I don't want to take any slaves. And that's actually a choice given to the, the, the Wali al-Amr, or the, the Khalifa, or the Sultan, is they can say, these prisoners, I just want them, I want them free. That's the decision given by the ruler. Um, the next option says, you can think about it as, if you can't do it right, you can't do it at all. This has the idea that uh, the Sharia has certain requirements for how slaves are supposed to be treated. So if people are systematically mistreating them, or systematically enslaving, let's say, Muslims when they shouldn't be doing that, that you should you basically ban slavery uh, because you're not able to prevent its abuses. And this is the argument made in 1846 by the governor of Tunis, which at the time was part of the Ottoman Empire, but it was really independent. In 1846, Ahmed Bey, the governor of Tunis, issues what's actually one of the earliest local abolition decrees in the world. He basically says everyone born in Tunis from now on will be free, and no one can legally be held as a slave. So if anyone's a slave, come to you know, one of these certain offices and get your something stamped for you, and you'll be freed. Why did he say this? He said, too many of the people who are being enslaved in Sub-Saharan Africa are actually Muslims. And slaves are not being treated well enough. They're not being treated according to the Sharia requirements for how slaves are supposed to be treated. So basically, uh, no one can do it anymore. Uh, that's that's uh, essentially the, the full range of arguments. The last argument would be simply that, what are you talking about? Slavery is wrong. This is just a Western idea. Uh, it doesn't have any Islam, Islamic legitimacy. My response to those people is, that doesn't work, because you guys are all Muslims, right? I mean, and if you go to Turkey or Jordan or Tunis or wherever, and you talk to Muslims, and you ask them if slavery is wrong, they're going to say it's wrong, too. I mean, if they're not, they're, they're, they're really kind of not being honest. People, most people today, who live in the world, certainly in the kind of global West, have really strong, instinctive feelings that slavery is wrong. So you can't just say it's like a Western idea, because this, this idea has penetrated even into non-Western societies, even amongst Muslims who are um, really committed to their religion. They don't, aren't Westernized in any other way. In any other way. Okay. Um, there's actually, I forgot one thing, uh, one big change that Islam, Islamic law brings to slavery, which is fascinating is that the descendants of Muslim, if a Muslim slave owner has a child with this female slave, the child is free, at the same social standing as children born of um, his free wife, free wife, and that when that, the master dies, his wife, is, his slave woman is freed. This is uh, unprecedented in world history as far as I know. It's totally unprecedented in the Near East. And the result is that, well, the result is part of what explains why there's no indigenous ab abolition movement in the Muslim world prior to kind of Western abolitionism. Because uh, if you're a, I mean, how, how would you know who's a slave in Islamic civilization, in an Islamic society? It, it's not based on skin color, it's not based on race, because if you see someone who's dark-skinned, they could be a slave, or they could be the free son 
of some super powerful merchant and his female slave. And that, that person is a free person and is like a 100% part of the elite. So there's not like a, a racial way of telling who's a slave and who's not. And that's really important. Because if you're a black person in the Caribbean or in North America, prior to the end of slavery, what's your, let's say you're not a slave, let's say you're a freed person, or let's say you're the descendant of free blacks. Are you um, enfranchised in that society? Not only are you not enfranchised, but you actually constantly live under what threat? You can be enslaved. Somebody come and say, oh, you're a slave. Like in 12 years of slave, right? So th there's no, the only route to, sort of route to safety is either you leave somehow and like, flee to some other place. Or you have to end the institution. The institution itself has to end to provide any level of security. In Islamic civilization, you don't have that because you, someone's appearance is in no, no way correlates to their status for your slave. Just so you, you, you can see how much has affected the elite, almost all the Abbasid caliphs, right, from Abu Jafar al-Mansur, when the Abbasid revolution happens in 750, till the end of the Abbasid caliphate in Baghdad in 1258, and all of the Ottoman caliphs, I think except one, were children of slaves. So their fathers were the caliph or the sultan, and their mother was slave woman. So Thomas Jefferson, if he were a Muslim, like under Islamic law, his children would have been legitimate children of Thomas Jefferson. You know, able to go, they were free, they would be, you know, like, like Kennedys or something, having their own political dynasty or something like that. Okay, uh, that's pretty much all I wanted to talk about. So uh, you, I assume that people have questions. Which I'm, I have time for question and answer, right? So I'm happy to. Yes, yes, yes. I'm happy to hear what you have to say or take your comments or whatever. Yes. Are there any rules of Islam regarding concubinage? Like if the lady's already married. If the lady's already married, like, uh, and she's captured in war. But if she's already married, so here's the thing. If you, so slaves can marry in Islamic law. So you can, if you have a slave, female slave, and she marries somebody, then she can't be the concubine of her owner. She's off limits. She's like any other married woman. Um, yes? So, it's, it's sort of a thin point, but I, I understand the idea the difference between evolution and emancipation. But isn't that like severe push for emancipation comes from the idea that slavery is bad? Like there is an inherent evil in it that the Quran and yeah. the Prophet are constantly pushing against. So there's an interesting, I mean, it's a good point. Thank you for bringing this up because, and this is something that Tasneem actually helped me with book research, which is that uh, so Muslim scholars always acknowledge that slavery was harmful. They talked about it as, they use the word darah. Darah means harmful. Right? So they, what's harmful about slavery? They said, you, you don't get to make your own choices. You don't control your own labor. You're not a full legal person. Like, for example, you can't um, you can't be a, according to some schools of law, you can't be a witness in court if you're a slave, right? You couldn't be the leader of the Muslim community. So they, they acknowledge this is harmful. 
but they uh, that harm was superseded by property rights. So somebody's a property right was stronger than the harm that was inflicted on that person. So in, in a lot of ways, what's happened in modern times since the Industrial Revolution is that the harm has, we, we see the harm is greater and that we, we push down or reduce the property right. And that's, uh, that's really like a, a choice of prioritization. It's not about, you know, changing your point of view completely. It's about like how are you going to prioritize harms and benefits. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a great argument because I, I hope I don't offend anyone, but like even the idea of a civil war that targets people's property rights ends up in so much much evil. But the idea of a more voluntary emancipation that that wouldn't have happened. I'm not like I'm not talking alternative history. Well, yeah, this is something say, that people. I mean, I'm not a specialist in American history, but I do know that there's you know people talk about whether or not. Like the, the amount of money that the North spent fighting the Civil War, they could have like bought out all the slaves in the South like many times over with that amount of money. Um, and it, it's interesting when you see the debates amongst Christians in the 1700s and 1800s about, about abolition. Um, like Christians would say, Christians who weren't supportive of ending slavery would say, look, if slavery is evil, why, didn't, why did the Bible allow it? Why did Jesus allow it? Why didn't Jesus say, hey, slavery is really bad? He never said that. And the abolitionists would say, okay, well, Jesus didn't say that because it would cause too much strife. And he would have, it would have really undermined his ability to teach. To which the, their opponents said, I don't know if you read the Bible, but Jesus wasn't exactly, you know, afraid of controversy in the Bible. Right now. So, and in addition, they say, you know, I, I understand your point, but we're kind of having strife right now in the 1800s. It's called the Civil War. So they're like, even 1800 years later, there's still massive trauma being caused over these debates. So, uh, if you, it's very interesting to read the uh, Western debates over this because you see that they're having the same discussions that Muslims have like 50, 60 years later. I'm, I'm sorry, can I just ask if there's additional time? Yeah, I guess. About you're you're going to come up here and discuss things? Is that Was that the like, yeah. argument? <laughs> yes, for certain, sure. I'm pretty sure it shouldn't just be a white guy talking about this. <laughs> 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 we need to have some, to have some balance here. <laughs> what, uh, yes, what was your... Uh, a, a big show, a, a big thing that Muslims are attacked about is sexual access and uh, female body autonomy when it comes to concubines and the PME. Those, yeah. those verses are all over. Yeah. And they don't they don't come in the same sense of condemnation or like push for emancipation that comes with slavery as a student. Yeah, that's a tough topic. Um, I, I leave that to the end of the, my. I wrote a book on this issue of slavery and Islam. If you want to read you wrote a book on this? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I mean, no. So that's, that's the last chapter I talk only about female like, concubinage because it's so hard for us to deal with because it, you get two problems. One, you have the problem of slavery. Two, the problem of consent. Um, the consent issue I would just deal with in this, the following way, which is that in Islamic law in general, consent is very important for sex and marriage uh, for certain people. But that, that's, that doesn't 
that's not, it doesn't do the work that we would have it do in American, American law, or in American society. For Muslim, for Islamic law, that work is done through the concept of harm. So we have lots of examples in fiqh and in legal cases where uh, female slaves or wives, in theory, in Islamic law, like a wife doesn't have any right to consent to sex because the marriage itself is that consent, right? But that doesn't mean that the husband can just do whatever he wants. We have lots of cases in Islamic law where the judge or the jurist will say, you can't do this thing because this thing is harmful. You can't do that thing because this thing is harmful. Uh, so uh, the same thing with uh, female slaves. So uh, you, you can't engage in harmful conduct. Now what defines harm? Harm is defined generally by custom. So in our society today, we could agree if this is right or wrong, but whatever the case, in, in American society today, we valorize consent so much, we valorize autonomy so much that any non-consensual touching or sex would be, we see it as per se extremely harmful. That's what we consider. So if, if there were a Sharia court in America today, I'm not trying to do like Sharia creepers, if there were a Sharia court and a Sharia judge in America today, and a wife came up and said, my husband had sex with me without my consent, that would be, in our society, defined as harm. I would imagine that that judge would do what, what you would have, one of the things that the wife would have to be compensated, or the, if the wife wanted out of the marriage, that the judge would do what's called the tafrib or judicial separation. I'm separating you two, the marriage is over, wife gets to keep the dowry, uh, or has to be paid a back-end dowry. So um, I think a lot of this has to do with, uh, when you start thinking about what consent does for us in our society, what, do we, what is consent supposed to do? Consent is supposed to protect us against harm. So in Islamic law, they just have the d direct discussion about harm. If you're interested in this, I would recommend reading the last chapter of my book on slavery in Islam. Yes. Thank you so much for your talk. So I'm like, yes, and in Islam, the Torah is one of the holy books, including Exodus, and I'm assuming. And I'm a revert, so I grew up with the Bible, not Islam. And so I was wondering if you could talk about um, an Islamic parallel to liberation theology. So when Moses freed the Israelites, wasn't that symbolic of our liberation, our freedom from slavery? And even the idea of slavery being prohibited based on the golden rule, like what you want for your brother, you want for yourself. Yeah. Um, so the the Quran does mention that the Bani Israel that they were enslaved, but the the main way that the Quran talks about this condition of the Jews in Egypt is not slavery. It's uh, what's called istidaf being oppressed in the land. Like, so the, they were talked about as being you were, you were oppressed in the land. And that's the way the Quran also talks about the Muslims in Mecca before they moved to Medina. So the, the, the kind of the metaphor of the, Jew, the Israelites' exodus is, is the metaphor of Muslims' exodus from Mecca to Medina um, and the exodus from Kufr to belief, right? But the Islam, the Quran talks about this through the language of oppression, not the language of slavery. Which is an interesting choice because, um, well, we've had this long discussion about what slavery is. Um, we can disagree how to define it, but we, no one would support oppression. So I think, like, in a way, I would say that the Quran actually cuts through a layer of definitional problem. And just gets to the real issue, which is people being oppressed. 
But this is a, a good question. Thank you. Um, so I think we had discussed this during the break a bit, but when I thought about the issue or the scourge of slavery, I thought about the verses of the alcohol, the use and permission of alcohol as well. Initially, alcohol was permitted, and then later verses were arrived where it said that don't come to prayer drunk. Then later it was completely entirely abolished. So it's not that God was wrong, and then he had to correct himself twice over, but it was because at that time the society or the custom couldn't receive that revelation. So I wonder if it's the same. I think there, there, it's, it's a similar discussion, right? So we talked about this approaches to abolition in the Islamic tradition. One approach was that, you know, it, it should have, God didn't prohibit slavery because it wasn't possible to get rid of it, but that Muslims were sort of set on this trajectory to end it. Restrict the ways in, encourage the ways out, so you end up with kind of end of slavery. Um, and then there's just the question of whether that should have happened like right away, which is that Second approach I mentioned, which is you see is being advocated people like Rashid Ridla, died in 1935, or um, uh, Sayyid Amir Ali, died in 1926, various Muslim thinkers from the Near East and India. Or the, the other one, which is that it's an aim of the Sharia. So when it becomes, when abolition becomes possible, when it becomes part of the discussion, then it should be taken as the best way to fulfill the idea of, ma of maximizing emancipation because emancipation is one of the aims of the Sharia. That approach, in my opinion, is the best because, one, it is fully authentic and true to the Islamic tradition, and second, I hate to say this, but it doesn't impose what's actually a very problematic concept, which is that slavery was always wrong in world history. If slavery was always wrong in world history, then why are all these great minds that we respect and listen to and read their books today, why didn't they say this? Why did they say the opposite? I mean, were they, was Thomas Aquinas an idiot? You know, St. Augustine an idiot? Was Al-Ghazali a moron? And we're, like, I'm, I'm more intelligent than them? So somehow we get it or not, you know? I, I think that's very problematic. So, um, uh, I was blessed to be able to read excerpts from your book. One of the uh, considerations, multiple considerations, but you, you were able to, in your research, and your citations to pull a lot of colloquial expressions together, popular culture references, as well as the academic uh, background to substantiate that. How long did it take for you to research and write this book in that manner? Oh, come on, man, you're not gonna... I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm serious, because um, one of the things that I see in our society when you have somebody of high academic standing, they don't write in a manner that the lay person can understand and read. Your manner of writing is palatable for anybody at that level. And one of the things is to be able to connect with your audience. So I'm curious how long it took for you to write it in that manner. I mean, I, I, I think that... Um, too bad you might be without you. Sonorous of voice. So that... I mean, I would say that... For, it really, like, for me, I wrote this book... People say, a lot of people said to me, you know, you can't write this book because you're a white guy. I understand, like, believe me, yeah, I, I am, I'm a 100% privileged person. Like, the other day, I was just yesterday, I said to my wife, I was like, you know, one of my main regrets in life is that I, um, what was it? I didn't buy this one tie at a um, street market in Seattle. Like that's my biggest regret in my life. Like, what the hell is it? <laughs> what kind of life have you had? So that, I have, even like Islamophobia I get is like, you know, nice Islamophobia. 
So I know that I have immense privilege, uh, but I still the reason I care about this issue. I'm not trying to make some excuse for Muslims or Islam. Or I I'm, I want to know. Like I read the Quran and I didn't understand. I want to know the answer to this. Why is it that why is it the Quran doesn't condemn something that I feel is wrong? Why was it that Muslims allow something I feel I don't understand? How could the Prophet have allowed something that I couldn't imagine? I want to know the answer to that. So, and when I think I, I feel satisfied with my answer, and I wanted to make this uh, accessible to as many people as possible. The second thing I say is that uh, the problem on this topic isn't really at the philosophical level, right? So, if you've got a bunch of philosophers together academically, there wouldn't be a slavery conundrum because I mean, think about it. Is it? Are you really telling me that? Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire and this field hand in South Carolina that you can't make a distinction between that's absurd. That's absurd, right? So, but that's not a feature of like high-level discourse. It's a feature of almost a popular American discourse on this. So it's the problem. The, the stumbling blocks for us are not at a high level. They're actually at the popular level uh, in our. That's what I would say. So that's why I, I really try to invoke a lot of kind of colloquial examples or pop culture examples, not because I'm trying to you know, sound cool, because that's actually the level at which our discussion derails. Identification. Yeah. So we can all identify at that level. Um, I had a kind of a different uh, conclusion as I was reading, and the perspective I deduced from, from your writing is you almost performed what I saw as like an autopsy on the institution of slavery within Islam. What I mean by that is, within the sciences, science does have its uh, biases based on your academic training. You acknowledge that up front, and you, what you just said was an acknowledgement of that. I'm white, I'm Muslim. So by putting out those biases in your examination process, it allowed for a more objective discourse. This is what I'm presented with up front. These are the lenses in which I'm going to have to mitigate my view from. So it became what I saw as kind of like an autopsy, where these are the facts, this is the conclusions I come to based on the facts that I've deduced. You can come to your conclusions because what I'm listing is the facts. The evidence, the historical context for it, and it became more of a nuanced discussion based on it. There wasn't a desire to intentionally create excuses for why something happened. What we don't have now is, like you said, is nuanced discussion where there are some topics that simply cannot be broached. Um, the uh, oppression Olympics we play in society now. Um, me as a black male, I'm more oppressed than a white male. Uh, me as a black male, I'm more oppressed than a Latina female. So by examining those lenses up front, it seemed like you were able to address um, from an academic and from a social standpoint what I saw as kind of an autopsy on the institution of Islam and slavery. Is that a fair conclusion? Yeah, I, um, I, I, think, I, I think so. Um, I mean, because I think like once you identify the, my issue is, once you kind of step out of the American context, I think the American context really limits you because you're, you're totally trapped in the problem of race, you're trapped in the problem of, Ameri you know, class and race in America and stuff. Like, once you start talking about the Islamic tradition, it just becomes a totally different discussion. That's the discussion I'm interested in. Like, I'm not, I don't, ultimately, I don't really care if George Thomas Jefferson was a great guy or not, because I have no, 
commitment to Thomas Jefferson. I have no commitment to George Washington. I mean, they were good guys or bad guys, it doesn't matter. What matters to me is like the prophet, based on Salaam, what matters to me is the Quran. And so that's what I was like interested in discussing. And I think the American context is like very, um, it, it's really like shackles you to, sorry for the idiom abuse, but. Um, the shackling. So one of the conclusions I came to also was we were, you were going through the process of defining what slavery is and what slavery is not. And slavery is always subjectively defined. And what I kind of saw is um, it almost represents one's ability to define their privilege. So in gradation, it's a gradation of, um, well, I'm a slave only in comparison to somebody above or below me. Our privilege almost seems to define when you talk about the status of the Turkish, um, the, the Ottoman Turk Empire, somebody is only a slaver defining themselves based on where they're at within that subjective society that they're in. Is that a fair? Yeah, I think this is an important point to make because we think about sort of slave and free as these uniform, it's kind of the way society is divided. So free people are better off than slave people. Actually, in most of world history, and certainly in the kind of Mediterranean and Eastern world, the slave's position is defined by the position of their master. So if you're the slave of Julius Caesar, or if you're the slave of the Sultan, you might be like a million times richer and more powerful. Julius Caesar or the Sultan might send you, like you go and govern this, this area. And you go with your whole army and you're in charge of that area. So you're actually more powerful than countless free people because you're the direct tool of your master who happens to be super powerful and wealthy. So that's something that is, um, that doesn't really make sense in American context. Because in American context, slave and race function to uh, appease white people. So, uh, like, I think it was Richard, Linda, Lyndon Johnson or Richard Nixon who said this, that, you know, you can, you can pretty much do whatever you want to poor white people because you just have to tell them that, that black people are worse than that, right? That black people are inferior. And so the inferior, inferiority of blacks allows you to sort of infinitely deprive poor white people because they'll always just think they can still kick down on the black guy. Uh, which is one of the reasons I refer to the Jim Crow period as neo-slavery. Um, in essence, there was an increase in privilege, but for what we define as freedoms and opportunities, those were reduced compared to the com contemporaries. So now you see, in, in, uh, you, you see uh, every time slavery is broached, uh, an old trope will come up about how the Irish were slaves when they first came here also. But the institutions were different fundamentally in how their treatment um, was seen here. So now when you, saw, when, you, when you hit the Jim Crow period, you often saw, well, if nothing else, I may not be wealthy, but I'm not black. Yeah. So that became its own definition of what privilege was, and everybody was in a gradation either above or below that. And I kind of see that theme that's even transcended into modern time. We don't speak about it and see it as freely, but there's this undercurrent that often says, I may not be this, I may not be as rich as Bill Gates, but I'm not black, I'm not this. I'm not defined by this marginalized group which was another concept you talked about in terms of referencing what slavery is and is not, is to the degree in which you're marginalized in that society. I think this brings up an important point in Islamic civilization, in the Sharia in general. And people, 
love to say, oh, the Sharia persecutes non-Muslims because non-Muslims don't have the same rights as Muslims. My answer is that is, yeah, what, you know how you become a Muslim? You just say, la ilaha illallah, and then you're a Muslim. Like you, you can instantaneously enter the elite. And someone might say, oh, that's wrong, you shouldn't have to change your religion to do that. I was like, okay, fine. But you know what? In order to become an elite in the United States and lots of other countries, let's say you're undocumented or you're not a citizen. There's nothing, there's literally nothing you can do. Pretty much nothing you can do to ever enjoy the same rights as other people. They were born into through no virtue of their own. Or there's, you can't change your skin color. You can't change people's racist views. So, uh, if you were, and I, I, if you read my book, I give countless examples of this, like the, the elites who are, have African phenotypes. Like the um, books written by Ibn al-Jawzi, Jalal al-Din al-Jahid, books that are hundreds of pages, hundreds of pages long, that are, that, where they list all the great figures in world history and in Islamic history who are African. And why did they write those books? They wrote those books because they said, we do not want people who have African or black, we do not want them to think that they are lowly people. So they, again, you can say well, Muslims are racist or something. How many of you have written hundreds of page long book giving all the great people in world history and Islamic history who are black? I mean, uh, I'm not in any way trying to give Arabs or DCs like a free pass on racism. Like, they're so racist a lot of the time, and that's unacceptable. And I, I, I don't accept that. I would immediately reprimand anybody who did. Because it's completely against the positions of our beliefs of our religion. But we have to also take into consideration the efforts that Muslim scholars made to fight against that racism, which is really important. Uh, that was really pronounced in um, uh, comparing that to our modern societies and the development of the societies against the social, academic, and legal development of Islamic societies. Because what you see comparing the American society is at what point do you have an enslaved group that is fully integrated into the society after they become free? So if you compare with the examples you just provided, once you become free, you are supposed to be a citizen if you are Muslim in the society. Comparing that to the, the, the American experience, at what point were black people fully integrated into the society, less the legal constructs, because you still had the social constructs. And only, I've only seen a couple examples of that, which would be a Korean group that was enslaved during World War II and taken to Japan. They still weren't fully allowed to integrate. Whereas in the Islamic tradition, if you're free and you're Muslim, you're integrated into that Muslim society. Is that kind of what you're referencing? Yeah, th this is an idea that's brought, it's, it's developed by an African scholar named Ali Mazrouri. I think he died in 2014. He's a Kenyan scholar. And uh, he taught at Sunni Binghamton, and he talked about the idea of ascending miscegenation. So miscegenation is like racial mixing. So in an American system of slavery, if you had miscegenation, you, you miscegenated down into the slave class. So like Thomas Jefferson's children were slaves, and they were not white. Uh, whereas in the Islamic tradition, you miscegenated up into the free society of Muslims and enfranchised people. And uh, that was a, that's again one of the reasons you don't have indigenous movements for abolition is that there's the slaves population is like getting sort of sucked upward over time into the free population. And uh, just to let you know an example of this, like if you go back to the early generation of Muslims, people like 
Ibn Ishaq, author of the Sirah, his grandfather was a slave. Ibn Sirin, father was a slave. Hassan al-Basri, father was a slave. Makhoul um, al-Shami, uh, father was a slave. Or they were freed slaves. Uh, I can give you, if you go back to look at the great scholars of the first two or three generations, a lot of them are either freed slaves or they're children of freed slaves. And they're, uh, Bilal is another example, right? So, and by the way, I'm not talking about, I'm being very careful, because maula can sometimes just mean someone who's a non-Arab convert. I made very sure that the people I just mentioned are not non-Arab converts or something. They are actually either freed slaves or their parents, one of their parents was a freed slave. So the, to the extent that Zuhri, the famous early scholar, died 742, a huge early Hadith transmitter, he said, the uh, ilm has been taken over, knowledge has been taken over by the Mawali. Like the Arabs, the Arabs, he says the t Arabs are tired and gone. Arabs' time is over. Knowledge has been taken over by the Mawali. The, 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 these are the, the freed slaves of, of early Islam are the ones who become the great scholars. So, one of the things, and it's a, kind of a personal perspective, uh, and how I evaluate a lot of situations. I, I start with a, a, a simple question, no matter what the subject is. Um, could I accept the possibility that I could be wrong? And it's a great research-driven tool. And it seemed like um, you displaced any personal bias to the best of your ability in conducting your research. You're not looking for a conclusion prior to starting your research. And you let the research kind of render what the decision-making what process was. Is that a fair way to um, evaluate kind of the research project? I, this is the question. I could be wrong about any existing conclusion that I have. Let's see where the research lays. Well, I mean, I would say that except for one thing, which is I, and I, I think I might even have said this in the book, which is that you know, I, I will not, I do not think it's possible that the Prophet, Islam, committed uh, egregious moral wrong. I just don't think that's possible. Um, and the problem is, if you do think that's possible, then they kind of raised a lot of questions about... Yeah, I mean, like, why, you know, what is, what is, what is being Muslim? Um, so that, I, I sort of said that pretty, I think it was toward the end of the book, I'm not sure. But that's the only, it was funny because I, one of my students kind of called me on that when I was handed a draft out to my undergraduates a couple years ago. He was like, well, why don't you just say this, because you, you, know, you know you believe this, so why don't you just say it? And I, I think that's the one thing. But I, I think that that, you know, if you're open about it, then the reader knows that that's your belief. And my guess is that a lot of people who are Christian or Jewish or come from backgrounds they also revere scripture, they have, the, they have that person in their scripture too, right? So Jesus or Moses or something, right? So, um, they all have those, those authority that they're not willing to condemn morally. And so I think that, that there's a reader more often has that kind of belief as well. It just happens to be on a different, in a different tradition. And whether they can see that that's actually a potential bias that they have. Um, what I hope is that everybody gets the opportunity to read the book because, as I stated before, it's written in a perspective it's written in a prose that everybody can understand. Um, sometimes it's difficult, embarrassing for me to read something with the academic background that Dr. Brown has. I just, I feel like I'm missing the concept. 
the language, the vocabulary that's chosen, but you can parse through the concepts and we can all kind of identify it, one being within the American construct, two more so being Muslim. It's easy to understand the concepts and the, and, and the manner of reading that, um, that, that Dr. Brown wrote in. So that's just my invitation. As a layperson, um, you can definitely understand it and accept the concepts, and it makes you think. When you're not trying to come to a conclusion based on somebody else's writing, but they allow you to critique it and think for yourself, and when you can arrive to similar conclusions, it's that much more palatable, it's that much more, there's more of a feeling to it, um, emotionally, that I was able to, to experience. Were there any other questions uh, the crowd had for Dr. Brown? Safe. So I, I want to go back to the last question that before we started this uh, discussion. You, you took the position that abolition was the best case of emancipation. Uh, I'm quoting, I'm not quoting, just paraphrasing what you said. Uh, and then you, in another instance you mentioned that the Sultan had the opinion, or the Sultan's opinion would be the um, thing to go. The, the question that I want to bring back to, and I was wondering why you said that was, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَا فَرَّطْنَا فِي كِتَابِ مِنْ And another ayah, يَوْمَا أَكْمَلْتُ لَكُمْ دِينَكُمْ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never yeah, reaches the point of abolition. So. Oh, that's a great question. And this, uh, in my book, I actually have, I think, the most extensive discussion of this issue, which is really weird because it's such an important topic. It's called Tapi'id al-Mubah, the restriction of what's permissible. So the, the, the Quran talks about uh, right? So why do you prohibit what God has made permissible for you? So there's a, you can't say that something haram if God hasn't made it haram. And you can't uh, so God and the Prophet didn't prohibit slavery, so why are we allowed to prohibit it? Um, we're not allowed to prohibit it, in the sense we're not allowed to say it's haram. But we are allowed to prohibit it in the sense of making something illegal. And the example is, here would be like driving on the right side of the, you know, you can't drive on the left side of the road, not because God said you can't, God never said don't drive on the left side of the road. But this is part of the siyasa authority of the ruler, which is to promote law and order, and to promote the maslaha, the, the best interest, the, the, the common good of Muslims. So uh, uh, you're allowed to, you can't prohibit something that is required. So I can't say I prohibit, I prohibit praying, or I can't say I prohibit fasting, or I can't require you to eat during fasting. That I can't do as a ruler. But I can say I require, let's say, slaves to be treated in a certain way. Or if I think that we don't need slavery anymore and uh, I'm gonna prohibit any importation of slaves in the future, I can do that it's because I'll say this is an aim of the Sharia and it's no longer economically required. The main thing I can imagine someone rebutting or reject, objecting to is saying, oh, well you're saying that slavery is evil just like driving on the right, left hand side of the road is evil. No, that's not what I'm saying. Except that I am saying, yeah, that uh, the evil of slavery is a customary evil. It, and I know that makes people uncomfortable, but my main evidence for that is, if it were a universal evil throughout space and time, why did none of the greatest minds and hearts in human society ever say this? 
Now that would be, I mean, look, if, if, if it's a universe able to throughout space and time, give me evidence for why for that being the case. Uh, Kyle, yes. <laughs> you're standing up, so it seems like you're not bad. Okay. I just had kind of a, just as you were talking, I had a thought that if you were to go way back, obviously, in the span of time back to Adam Islam and the first human beings, obviously there was no such thing as slavery. At some point, it got innovated based on probably between war. I don't know if you did any research in the book, because I haven't read the book yet, uh, about the, the conception uh, of slavery, but to me, it seems like there's no way, unless it was just like based on like that, I don't, I don't understand how it could have been initially okay. Mm. Like the yeah. first person who got enslaved was not like, I'll be a slave. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so at some point it was definitely wrong from the beginning. Well, so that's a, there's a scholar named Ibn al-Mundir who died in about 9.30 of the common era. So it's very, he's from Nishapur in northeastern Iran. And he says in one of his books, he says that uh, God created Adam and and he created Adam's partner, right? He um, he made him immune to slavery. And this is, by the way, not even given in the context of slavery. Debate. This is just the debate of something. The context of another discussion. And all human, all descendants of Adam are free. The only situation in which a descendant of Adam can become a slave is if they are an unbeliever that a Muslim captures in the abode of war. So the reason I bring this up is to say that there is a strong, very strong belief or position in Islamic thought, law and theology and philosophy, that humans are naturally free and that the situations in which they can become a slave are very limited. As I said before, the, the, for a long time, the majority position of Muslim scholars was that you couldn't even buy someone who'd been enslaved in another society if you were outside the abode of Islam. You couldn't, that, uh, they hadn't been enslaved properly. The uh, question then becomes like, how does sort of slavery begin? Um, and I would, start, I would ask the question like this, how do you have situations in which people are uh, put into positions or put themselves into positions of extreme dependence or servitude? And uh, the answer seems to be twofold from what we have in terms of historical records. One is that capture and war Two is debt or poverty, and three is just like being a total outsider. So if you're if you end up like in a place and in, in a society where you're completely alone and you have nobody to protect you at all, like you attach yourself to some existing family or tribe or clan or something like that. That you're like a, in a marginal position, you attach yourself to protection. So it seems like those are the three main well, sort of one is capturing war, two is debt, three is sort of extreme marginal, being an extremely marginal position. How are we going I think we agreed that we'd end at uh, 4.45, inshallah. Uh, that's right. I'm going to do that five. Okay, okay. Um, so I wanted to ask a question about that. That's, uh, it's about slavery, but it's also about race. All right. So one of the things that you said in the book, and you said it here, and we reiterated in my group that, you know, that our notions of the racialization of slavery is purely an American lens, right? However, I really feel like, I haven't done the reading on this personally, 
you know, I've got read some articles, but not, not, not nothing too deep. But it's my belief that in Muslim majority places in the Middle East, you know, Arab majority countries, and maybe even uh, South Asian countries, that there's a deep and abiding anti-blackness. It just, it's uh, not a commentary from like, my personal interactions necessarily, but you know, just my observations. So, so I would, you know, um, and just as a note before I kind of get to the question, uh, one of the things that a lot of African Americans are doing now is their DNA. And one of the things that, in looking at my own DNA sort of research, one of the things that I noticed, not just for myself, but a lot of African Americans, there's a strand of our DNA that's actually connected to Zanzibar. And so one of the, so I started to read the history about this a little bit, thinking most of our ancestry comes really from West Africa, right? So, you know, Ghana, Nigeria, Cameroon, Congo. But all the way, Mozambique and Zanzibar. I'm like, how is that such a big chunk? Actually, a good 10% chunk of our ancestry. And so I started looking at that, and it's because of the Arab slave trade in East and Southeast Africa, right? And so, uh, and so in looking at that, at some point in time, there was a racialization of slavery that happened before the transatlantic trade, the Euro-American, what I like to call Euro-American trade. So it happened at some point in time. I just don't know the history of the Arab slave trade well enough. It did get tied into transatlantic trade. They're actually the ones who taught Portuguese, Spanish, and eventually British how to conduct an international trade in slaves. It became racialized before them. I fully and honestly believe that. Right. Okay, so you, uh, this is a very good question. Uh, is that, is that is, are you done? Okay. Yep. Uh, these are excellent points. Um, but I, again, we have to, we need to be careful about what we mean by say by race, right? So, has anyone ever watched this, this series called The Wonders of the African Continent with the Henry Louis Gates? Ever watched this? I think it was made in the 1990s. It's really interesting. He walks around like Africa in the Harvard t-shirt the whole time. <laughs> anyway, I just remember. So he has a, it's really interesting to watch. So he goes to the, he's on the in, I think he's in Mombasa, or in um, uh, Lamu in Kenya. And he goes and he talks to this group of Kenyans, right, that they, they say they're Persian. And he's like, you guys are black. He's like, you're not Persian. And they're like, no, 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 we're Persian. So they, they look just like everybody else. But their patrilineal ancestor was Persian. So in Islamic Arab notions of Nesab, they're, they are Persian. It doesn't matter if they're dark as, as midnight, right? They're Persian. So what you had here was a, a clash of two different ways of, of understanding race, right? So he, he's operating on the American system of color, like essentially like what can you pass as? And they're operating on the Islamic you know, notion of Nessa. It doesn't matter what color you are, because if you had, if you, if your patrilineal answer was the Prophet, and every single person, every single mother through that whole thing was a slave woman from Africa, you're still Arab and you're still the center of the Prophet, right? So uh, when we talk about the Arab slave trade, I think we have to be careful when we imagine these like Arab guys like enslaving African people who are black and the Arab people are not black, right? A lot of people who are engaged in this slave trade are themselves. We would we would think of them as black, right? Or per, but they were they saw themselves as Arab or Persian or Indian or something like that. So I think that you know there is a racialization, but the racialization doesn't take place along the lines of American notions of race. It takes along takes uh, uh, um, along the ideas of who is Muslim and who's not Muslim. So 
And uh, one of the things that Muslim scholars really push back on and correct is people when they start associating blackness with, with, with unbelief, because they say, these areas you're taking slaves from, they have a lot of Muslims who live there. You can't enslave Muslims. So they're, they're, they're kind of pushing back against people who are being lazy about identifying uh, you know, enslavability based on color, because they're like, look, these people look like they live, but they're all Muslim. By the way, the scholars who were writing that also were black. Like we would think that we would go and say that guy's black, but they said no, no, we're Arab or we're Persian or we're whatever. So I think that uh, it's a very fair discussion to talk about the Muslim slave trade and its abuses in Africa. But I think that we have to be careful about like making it another instance of sort of black people being oppressed by non-blacks. Because even if you go like in Darfur and stuff, the people in Darfur are Muslims. The people who were abusing them in the mid-2000s were Muslims, right? So it's not just always like Arabs. And if you go, if you see Sudanese Arabs, they look, they look black to me. Like, I, I, I guess they're Arab, but they, I thought they were black. But no, they're, they're turned out they're Arab. And then Sudanese people are like, oh, we're always being treated, people are always racist against us. But then they're racist against the South, the, 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 the Dinkas and the, the Nuer who are to the south of them. So, you know, everyone's black compared to somebody else. Everybody, maybe like some Norwegian person, probably not black compared to anybody. But the point is that there's what we do, how we have to make sure that we're not, when we talk about racialization, that we acknowledge that there's different forms of racialization, different like universes of that that are separate from American notions. If, if I understood kind of the direction you were going, it's kind of the strata of, um, of social structure or globally when it comes to who we define and what we define as black people. Um, you're seeing a resurgence now with the Afro-Latino community with pride in being black, whereas historically there has been no pride associated with being black. And, and our experiences as Muslims have uh, borne kind of that same experience. I recall being a revert and um, living in Detroit, going into Dearborn, and for some unexplicable reason, the Muslims there wouldn't give me salat. Um, going to a lot of places and noting within an Islamic environment that there was just something different about me and I was just as Muslim as everybody else. That kind of the experience where you see the racialization and it goes back historically. Abid, the, where you have these uh, slang terms which seem to be associated with black people. I would say it's not just in the Islamic world. Um, it's difficult to say whether the Islamic world bled into these other places or these other places and institutions bred, bled into the Islamic world when, you see, when it's more pervasive outside the Islamic world. All of South America, all of Central America, there's been this pushback where um, Brazil, for example, over 55% of the population is now identifying as black. It wasn't popular to be black a, a decade ago it's becoming more acceptable. So I wouldn't say it's just in the Islamic world, it's been kind of this uh, growth and acceptance of what it means to be black. I have people approach me now asking me, strangest thing, I've never been asked if I was Yemeni before until last week. Never in my life. I've been asked if I'm Cuban, a lot of things, but uh, somebody of, of Arab descent, that's my first. And I haven't got any lighter, so even my own construct of what is acceptable is beginning to change because my approaches are, are changing as well. 
I just want to interject a, a, a point to kind of connect what Kyle was saying and what you were saying. Um, so like two points, um, South Africa, anybody ever seen the movie Lethal Weapon might have seen that part where the South Africans, when the white South Africans start saying to uh, Mel Gibson, oh, you're a Kaffir lover. Anybody remember that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a kid, I was like, what? I guess it's just a random thing that sounds like an Arabic word. No, it isn't. It comes no, in, it exactly. And then later on, like, I found out that's an actual Arabic word from the, from the history when the Arab trade, slave traders were selling African non-Muslims to the Dutch, and they were like, hey, we have Kaffirs, basically, and then the Dutch thought, oh, that just means African slave, you know? Um, so there's that concept, I think, that got, you know, mixed in, which I don't think the Arabs had intended. But going back, I, w I would love to know about slavery pre-Islam, because I wonder if there is some notion of racialization, because, first of all, Bilal was not pure African, number one. I think his dad was from, like, Syria or something like that, and he was, he was captured. So a lot of people assume, like, Bilal was African, and so the slavery, a lot of Muslims have the notion that, oh, because he's black, this was so yeah. such a great move by the prophet because he was he was. No, most most of the, most of the slaves in Saudi Arabia, from what we can see from like books of Nasab and the historical sources we can find, the, the slavery was very widespread in Arabia, but not very common. So it was like widespread, but there weren't a lot of slaves. They were, they were all over, but they weren't a lot of them. And the most most of them, there's not one group that dominates. So there's some from uh, Abyssinia. There's uh, Byzantines, people from the north who were captured. Uh, the Arabs, ensla Arab slave enslavement was mostly based on capture. And so they would, there was a lot of like people from what now would be Syria or Palestine or Iraq or Egypt who had been captured by Sar like Saracen, Sarakinoi Arab raiders, were, or just from someone from another tribe. Zayd ibn Hatha was Arab, but he was captured from another tribe in a raid. So, um, there was not a racialization of slavery in, there was one group was like Abyssinians who had been captured or who were being sold, but that was just one possible, but it seems like the majority were actually other groups who had been captured. I think I had a kind of a similar question um, as what both of you were alluding to. Um, and the question I had written was, do you find the historical consistency of African enslavement in the last 1200 years to be a result of technology uh, inferior technology, political culture, um, because of past practice. So we, by default, have viewed black people or sub-Saharan Africans as the default people to go to for slavery um, as part of the tradition, or is it some type of social, uh, some type of religious prejudice? So you look in the American system where Christianity, they created a definition of Christianity, an outlook where we were the lost tribe, we were the tribe of Ham, we were, we were the dejected group. So was it a religious perspective that created this institution, or what we see as an institution, of primarily black people being enslaved? I think that kind of limits the part of the world that you're looking at, because if you look at, as referenced earlier, like the Ottoman Turks, the Ottomans, um, the amount of people that were enslaved and who they enslaved, from the Caucasus Mountains, um, I think our, our, our sphere is kind of limited in who we look at globally as having been enslaved, because we only study the enslavement of black people historically um, yeah, in this world. That's very important, because we keep using the word slave. Where does that word come from? Slav. Slav, right? So the, in the, the 
Europeans, Western Europeans in the Mediterranean, Northern Mediterranean, and in fact, Muslim Mediterranean, get most of their slaves from what's now the steppes of Russia and stuff like that, Eastern Europe. Um, and that only really stops for, the, for Western Europe in the 1400s. Why? Because the Ottomans gained complete control of the Black Sea, and they cut off access to like the Venetians and other groups that had been bringing slaves from the Black Sea route. They cut that access off. So they had to go and find another source of slaves. Besides, m many of the Slavs in Eastern Europe had converted to Christianity. You can't, Christians can't enslave other Christians. So where do they go? They go around uh, to Africa. So um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of, uh, it's very important for Muslims to have a discussion about anti-black racism in, a, in Muslim society. That's completely unacceptable, but we don't we don't want to think that the, the history of slavery in the world is a, is, a, is a question of blackness in Africa versus everybody else, because uh, that really does it, it sort of it reveals uh, pre uh, you know our own biases. But the only thing that's kind of weird to me is the fact that the Muslim world did go into Persia and did go into Africa, but slavery doesn't seem to look the same way. It doesn't seem as though slavery was 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 it propagated through Persia? It does, it did, because, was, because we happen to, because by the time you get to the, sorry. I can't, no, I was just going to say, what I said in all that, that the, region, I was just going to say, like, I mean, well, the first history of, all, of that. Yeah. So, first of all, if you were to go to Nishapur in the 10 hundreds, or Baghdad in 800, and you said slave, people would probably think of a Persian or a Turk. Yes. But a lot of, a lot of Persians were enslaved. Okay? Persians, people speaking some kind of Persianate language. Second, um, those areas become Muslim, so you can't enslave from them anymore. Then you start slaving from Turkish areas, then they become Muslim, you can't enslave from them anymore. So you have to go to other Turkish areas on the north of the Black Sea, um, or the Caucasus, right, areas where there are uh, like Christians in the Caucasus, like Georgia and Armenia. So by the time you get to the, like the 1700s, the only place Muslims can go is Sub-Saharan Africa. So it's more like, but if we were having this discussion a thousand years ago, we'd all have totally different idea about what slavery meant, like who we were talking about. And by the way, then uh, the, a lot, there's one of the main reasons that there's a really strong movement for abolition in Iran in the early 20th century is because Sunni Uzbeks in what's now Uzbekistan were raiding into Khorasan and poor Persia and enslaving Shiite Persians because they, they, they were saying they weren't Muslim. So, Iranians were like really pissed off at their own government in the early in the 1910s and 1920s because they were they weren't protecting them against enslavement by Sunni Uzbeks. Okay, quick follow-up, just if you allow me. Um, can you juxtapose the usage of the term Adami in the hadith to refer to a dark-skinned individual versus the hadith Hal bi so Adhem or Adam? Adhem or Adam? Adam. So the 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 hadith you're talking about. So there's two hadiths that are often conflated. One is in Sahih Bukhari, which talks about uh, 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 what is it? Say? Oh my gosh, Abu Darda, I think it is, who says that that's well, the weak. It's it's weak. That it's no, no, he says that. he says the. I, no, I, I think it's it's Abu Dada, if I'm not mistaken. He says, uh, I had my slave with him, 
and I insulted him, and when you insult somebody, you insult their, their mother, and then the slave is upset by that. It doesn't say the slave is African, it doesn't say the slave is Bilal. There's another hadith that's much less well known that, where it's Bilal who gets insulted. And then these two things get conflated. But either way, you're not allowed to insult slaves' ancestry. And in the other version, you're not in, allowed to insult someone Bilal for being black. Um, and then the Prophet, of course, says most famously in the Hadith and Muslim Ahmed and Hanbal from the final, the final sermon that the Arab is, has no virtue over the non-Arab, the red slash i.e. white has no virtue over the black, the black has no virtue, except the taqwa. So, the, I mean, I think that the, the prophetic condemnation of racism in the sense of judging someone by their race or judging them by their ancestry or... Um, Engaging in any of this, like my group's better than you, is is completely condemned. And as you know, when the when the the, the Khawarij and the Aus start to argue, the Prophet comes out and he, he says something. I don't think he says in any other hadith. He says hada muntin. I don't know of any other hadith where he says muntin means this is putrid, putrid. It's like it's like disgusting, rotten, rottenness. Like the, what you're. It is absolutely unacceptable. This like, my group's better than your group. And Muslims should, I mean, I know it sounds like I'm being cheesy and preaching stuff, but really do not accept other people saying things bad about another race, about another group of people. This is absolutely nonsense. You can say that cultures are different, but don't ever uh, allow people to be judged by their skin color or by their, who they're descended from. Inshallah, uh, last two questions. This brother was first. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about reparations. That's an interesting question. Not actually, I said in the, my book, like, that's another issue that you'd have to talk about. I mean, reparations in the U.S., uh, I, I feel pretty strongly about it. I mean, I think that there should be reparations to Native Americans and African Americans. Um, but, uh, you know, it's funny. I only came to that conclusion based on my feelings on the Palestinian issue. So actually, if you'd asked me like five or six years ago reparations, I would have said I didn't agree with it. And that's just how much, like I was raised super white. Like so I didn't really even meet any black people until I became Muslim, like African Americans. So I mean, this is a good example of, of like really, I could not see this issue until I actually approached it from the Palestinian issue. Uh, so I, I think in the American, in the American context is clear. The other question is, what about like do Muslims owe reparations? That's such a hard question. I don't know. I actually, I've been trying to think about how to approach that issue. I know Joe Bradford, uh, Sheikh Joe Bradford. He's Muslim. I don't know if you know. He's a very great scholar. He lives in Texas. Uh, he's I think written something about this online. I'm not sure what his conclusion was, but it, is, it would be an interesting place to start. Joe Bradford. His name is actually Joe. It's not Joseph. I think one of the considerations for that would be uh, comparing like Muslims to the American reparations consideration is the institutions that are related to uh, the plight of black people to a degree are still in existence. Whereas within the Islamic world, who are you attributing that to? Are you attributing to a specific state, a specific tribe? It's a little bit more difficult to point a finger at um, institutions that may not exist in a similar or at all capacity a yeah. thousand years later. And another big issue is if you look at the, some of the international kind of documents or declarations that have been made about reparations, like the Durban Declaration, I think which was from that, 
1998 or 2000, I can't remember exactly when it was from, but they, they state very explicitly that slavery was always a crime and was always morally wrong. But if you're not, like I as a Muslim, I'm not actually prepared to say that. I don't think that 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 the, the slaves, that the prisoners that were taken by the prophet during a certain battle and were enslaved, I don't think that was a moral wrong. I don't, I don't think that was illegal because I'm Muslim. And so when do you, at what point do you want to say this was illegal or immoral? Like, Prior to that, you wouldn't be able to, to um, there wouldn't be liability. So I think there's a lot of, but I think that that's a fascinating question, and I have only my own immature thinking on it. But I think that's something that I would really like to think more about, because the second you start talking about reparation in the U.S., well, why not Muslims? Muslims have to have a way of addressing this topic. Yes? Yeah, I just want to go back to the topic of slavery and this whole uh, notion of ownership. Um, this is idea of pisos, right? And if so, if you kill your slave, and, and you're not really, and you're the slave master, you're not really held accountable. Mm. Well, you are. And a lot of fiqh. No, no, so you, so... And, and, yeah. and so I just want to know this idea of ownership, because everybody's an abd, right? At the end of the day, everybody's an abd. So, why wouldn't there be pisos? Like, I know, I know, like, you know, um, so... So because there's, uh, this is a really interesting topic. I, I talk about it in my book. So, the Prophet in one hadith says, "Man qatla abdu qatlnahu, man jada abdu jadanahu, man ajda abdu ajdanahu." Right? This is narrated from by Hassan al Basri from Samurah ibn Jundub, Samurah ibn Jundub from the Prophet. And it's in, uh, it's uh, Bukhari narrates it, but I don't think it's narrated in his Sahih. If I'm not mistaken, it's, but he talks about it in his Tariq al Kabir. So this is an interesting because it makes this principle that if you kill your slave, you it's basically like you can be punished as if you killed any other person. Right? But the the methods don't take that position. They take the position that um, if you kill your so if you kill someone else's slave in three in the Hanafi in the Shafi Hanbali and Maliki school, you have to pay the person value that slave. Yeah. Uh, in, the Mal in the Hanafi school, there's no difference between a slave and a free person, in terms of, because that person's adamy, like they have, their, their adamic humanity is what governs the situation. But even in the Hanafi school, if you kill your own slave, there's a different issue. Uh, only some scholars took that hadith that I mentioned about the Prophet saying, if whoever kills it, we kill them, they take that and say, this is, this is the principle we follow. But most of the schools take the position, uh, rule from uh, the Prophet and Omar bin al-Khattab, which is that if you kill your own slave, you don't get executed, but you do get uh, exiled. You get 100 lashes and exiled for a year, and you uh, there's some other consequence as well. But uh, that's the, the, uh, the main ruling in the bad test. But the problem, the reason why it becomes problematic is uh, if you've taken the position that killing a slave isn't like killing a free person, therefore you can't be executed because you're a free person, you have to pay the value to that person's owner. If you kill your own slave, who do you pay the value to? So once you've taken that step, which everybody but the Hanafis did, now you're in a, in a logic where it doesn't really make sense to be punished for killing your own slave because like, who are you gonna pay the money to? But then they, there's this ruling from the Prophet and from Omar that the person is lashed 100 times in exile for a year. So if you're interested in this, you can look in my book on slavery. I have a whole discussion on this topic.
Okay. Salam alaikum everyone. I want to thank you all for coming out. I want to give a special thanks to uh, Dr. Brown. My pleasure. Another round of applause for Graylin Kimbrough.